Welcome back. Another episode of the Dogbone Podcast. Uh, this week, another kind of bonus extra for you, uh, taken from an interview and a conversation that I had with Kyle Warren of Paint River Llewellyn's. I really enjoyed this one. I think you will as well. I would recommend checking out um, Kyle's got his own podcast called Setter Talk. This was a, a an especially um, enjoyable one for me because I've never been asked to talk about setters before. And uh, not that I had a lot of value to share um, as far as information, but I think real world experience, um, maybe real world inexperience is the best way to describe it. But Kyle is a wealth of knowledge. I enjoyed talking with him. Um, and I, I think you'll enjoy this podcast. Uh, if you would do me a favor and enjoy these podcasts, please do uh, do Ben a favor because really it's Wonder Boy's little project. If you'd be willing to do me a favor uh, and actually give Ben Wonderboy a favor as well, would you please be willing to leave us a review or a comment or a rating wherever you're listening to this podcast? It really helps us um, achieve or, or work towards our goal, which is to hopefully grow this and share it with as many people as possible um, with the intentions of helping folks with their dogs. So if you'd do that for us, we'd really appreciate it. Enjoy, uh, and we'll continue to put these out for you. Hello, everyone. This is Setter Talk. I'm your host, Kyle Warren. We have our guest today, Jeremy Moore. Um, Jeremy, welcome to the show. Thank you, man. I really appreciate you having me. Yeah. Um, so <laughs> uh, I've been in your shoes, and by that I mean uh, you've had a, a like a trajectory of podcast interviews uh, airing over the past uh, a week or so um, on uh, Gun Doggy Yourself with Nick Adair and another guest, uh, Bob Owens, uh, to um, uh, just airing uh, yesterday or today uh, on the Companion Gun Dog podcast with uh, Grayson Geyer. And now you're here on Setter Talk. Um, and uh, certainly, uh, just like you, having reached out to Nick Adair, like say, hey, man, you know, nice to have two-way conversations with these, uh, you know, hot topics. And, sure. um, you know, I... I uh, uh, you know, regretfully to my deficit, and it's a it's a career long uh, deficit that um, uh, I, I I wear uh, openly. You know, I'm, I'm I've never been a book reader uh, of all the greats, and you know, and the what any training books, you know, grouse dog books, uh, grouse story books, uh, all these awesome podcasts are out there today. Uh, I don't know. I, I guess my excuse, which isn't a good one, is just that I'm, uh, I'm just always with the dogs, busy doing stuff with dogs. And by the time I'm done doing that, I'm focusing on my kids. But, sure, sure. Um, you know, the podcast definitely allows you to, uh, you know, put your phone in your pocket and play it while you're poop scooping. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, uh, so I when I see something uh, from the several podcasts of the people that I've I've come to feel they do a good job and uh, subjects and stuff. Um, you know, I try to take a listen and, um, the, the comedy, uh, and truth behind, uh, the, the not very detailed title that Nick gave his episode of trainer fights. <laughs> um, you know, instantly obviously, oh, there's more than one trainer here. Well, that's definitely going to be interesting, even if they're just talking about the color of a leash, you know? So, right, right. um, <laughs> so I, so I, I listened to that, uh, as soon as I, had seen that uh, uh, early in the week, and 
Um, and that was a great conversation. I mean, I, I, I commend you as a trainer and as a professional for remaining professional as, um, uh, both gentlemen and those two podcasts that you spoke with. I mean, that's the, uh, it's really nice. And I think that, um, one of the things that I hope comes away from, uh, and I'm sure it's been done before. I mean, there's probably been like, you know, tens of thousands of podcast recordings in this country, uh, since the advent of podcasts, I've just only listened to 20 of them. Um, but, uh, you know, something that I think would be great is, uh, the two way conversation, um, I mean, a great a great uh, interviewer and host can can try to create that, but certainly it also just depends upon um, if there are uh, you know comparable people in the field that just do things differently to be able to spark that kind of conversation. And uh, it'd be great to see more podcasts um, like that. So maybe, just maybe, uh, you know, uh, the format that has been uh, laid out by Gundog yourself and. Com- companion gun dog uh podcast and this one um we'll start to see more of those types of uh, conversations um so i guess uh uh you haven't been around passed around like the hot potato um this week um you know i, I think it's just a good time to keep that ball rolling because it, it gives an opportunity for people that are kind of bringing um uh i think i think your perspective on dogs is is one of the oldest perspective and, and from my perspective, a good perspective. But I think when it circles back around, like we'll say in the media like this, um, mm-hmm. it's a, it's a, it becomes a fresh perspective and a refreshed perspective. Um, and so, you know, it, instead of it normally, like everybody, of course, every, everything you've said in those two podcasts, which uh, I'm advising people before I even introduce this episode within listening to this episode to do themselves a favor and hear about your message, hear about your, your perspectives of your other podcasts. So this is, in my mind, almost like a uh, a part three series that is kind of not directly discussing the same things that you've discussed uh, of late. But um, a lot of a lot of the non e collar um, uh, approaches and uh, communication with dog these days, especially in the working dog world, um, is always around and there uh but it's kind of like a backdrop to everything it's not at the it's not at the forefront of of everything and uh i think to start off this conversation um it would uh it would be good to have both of us kind of like just give our backgrounds i mean i at least (laughs) prior to getting knee deep in this conversation i think from what i've heard uh you speak uh for a few hours now um uh we're 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 much more similar than we're not um uh in our perspectives and uh so um you know and we might find a few disagreeing things that make for some good conversation but to just give our listeners and bringing you in from the retriever world you know perhaps um uh there will be a, a new listenership uh part of this conversation uh bring into this conversation that um they'll get to hear me speak uh, you know as well as you and and again nothing but nothing but good and more information uh comes from that so yeah. i guess um uh you know i'll just kind of go over my background my dog life background and then i'll have you do the same and and then we'll start to kind of just uh 
dive into a couple different subjects and sure. see where it takes us. Um, so, so I, I was, I was kind of born into a dog breeding family, three of my aunts, uh, bred dogs, one professionally on a big scale, short hairs and labs and shepherds. Others, uh, toy breeds, standard collie. So I was always around dogs. And, um, uh, when I was 10, my father from one of my aunts got a German short hair pup. We didn't know anything about training. We just took it out and hunted on a really big, uh, preserve and um had a great time fell in love that's kind of where i really got into dogs and it was kind of full throttle uh from there but we literally did not do much training or anything we just went out and hunted with the dog and you mm-hmm. know the dog was a we let the, her out the house at home and you know she she was a runaway dog like if you're hunting with her she was with you like all the time if you let her out the door you'd be screaming at her for hours you know because she didn't really have any obedience but she was a great dog overall um all any shortcomings with her were 110 percent hours and um but like i had said you know i I never really read books i didn't really have uh any uh mentors i had one gentleman that when i was 16 and i got my license i oh every weekend i would drive uh to his place which is like an hour away from where i lived and he was a predominantly a bird dog trainer, um, and so I got to see a bunch of different breeds with him. But I, I think uh, ultimately, what came out of um, me uh, going there for a while was I kind of learned. I, I feel like more importantly, thing ways in which I did not want to be with dogs. Um, and uh, I think a lot of times for a lot of trainers, as they're kind of like getting their feet under them, um, there's who they are as a human being. Um, and there's, uh, there's all this, uh, information and, and experiences that you can have out there with other people that they're, that they are their own selves and they, and they, uh, uh, you know, just, just like there's so many different dog temperaments, so many different people temperaments, and that plays into training methodologies, philosophies, um, and sometimes even which utility disciplines people decide to do because it fits their personality um but uh so for me i was uh you know into the bird dogs i was uh into companion dogs from time i was 10 to 15 i trained several hundred dogs for nothing just as a kid teachers dogs neighborhood dogs shelter dogs all that kind of stuff and um grew up on a small farm got rid of all our animals in our barn i converted the barn into dog kennels we uh, I started to take dogs in, would train them after school on the weekends, all summers long, that kind of thing. Um, and when I was 16 is when I started to charge people for my services. And I uh, got into my early 20s and I started to have a lot of dogs. So I would go on the road and I went from taking dogs in for like six to 10 weeks and them coming once a week to work with their dog to, you know, just doing one-on-one sessions, going to them every week, you know, giving them assignments and, uh, you know, depending upon what we were working on and I would work with them in a capacity from, uh, three months, you know, quick in and outs to three years, depending upon, uh, the, the needs of the owner, um, their abilities and their resources. Um, so it just, it just depended, but, um, from like, uh, 16 to 24, you know, I, I had several different versatile pointing breeds of my own. I enjoyed them all. And, but then, um, in my mid twenties, my early twenties, and uh, two thousand four, I got on the setters, and I've, I've kind of fancied them ever since. Um, and then uh, somewhere in there, I I had an intense uh, side running affair with uh, German shepherds. 
um, <laughs> where uh, I did uh, um, search and rescue for 10 years, and I had several litters uh, of, of them as well. I, I've trained thousands of dogs and worked with thousands of people, but while I've trained thousands and thousands of dogs, like 70% of them have been German Shepherds and Labradors because that's those are America's breed when we just kind of look at rubber stamping, like, you know, yeah. What what is American pet dog ownership look like? It looks like a lab. It looks like a shepherd, you know. And yeah. um, so I've worked with a lot of breeds, dozens and dozens of breeds. But seventy percent of the dogs that I worked with in my training career have been those types of dogs. But uh, so I did SAR for uh, quite a while, certified dogs in wilderness area search, cadaver scent discrimination, tracking, trailing. Um, uh, it it's significantly. Um, expanded my worldview of a dog's nose to like an unbelievable depth of um, what they were capable of and how the environment could so drastically uh, adversely influence their ability to do their job. Um, and uh, yeah, so, you know, pretty much uh, jumping to 2012, I got a uh, camp property, built a camp in the Upper Peninsula of Michigan. And uh, I've been fortunate being a career trainer the last uh, 22 years. I've been able to make my schedule such that I hunt 450 to 500 hours every season uh, for ruffed grouse, um, uh, now exclusively in the Lake States, but prior to three years ago, Lake States and uh, uh, New England. Um, and, uh, you know, pretty much uh, having done all of that, I've, I've worked towards being able to Moved here three years ago uh, to the Northwoods and kind of graduated, I guess, if you will, within my career to now getting to um, uh, basically only take my own puppies back in for training, do some started dogs from my own stock. Uh, I still do phone consultations and, and virtual training, and I do one-on-one -on -one training still in a limited capacity uh, for people that are interested in to coming up here and, and, uh, working with me with their, with their dogs. But that's a kind of a, as fast as I could chronology of my sure. dog life. And, um, if you could, uh, do the same, um, uh, and I think that'll kind of just give our audience, uh, um, you know, a, a good understanding of where we're coming from with where we're going with the topics that we discuss. Yeah, sure. Um, I got a quick question for you. Uh, when you sure. did, when you did the search and rescue stuff, that was, I think you said, pre-2012, I think? You had said, it was in yeah. that window, 2008, 2012, or 2004? Yeah, two, that two, that, it was, yeah 2006, 2006 is when I got my, I was doing it since 2005-ish, uh, but 2006 is when I got my first own personal shepherd puppy that I owned sure. um, uh, and started that then, yeah. Did you, was that training, did you do that, like, independently was that something of your like a business of yours or were you working through an agency or how did how did that work for you so uh in the state of new york there's the um uh, new york state federation of search and rescue teams it's not-for-profit okay. organization it's all volunteer okay. um and at that time i don't know how many teams they have now my guess would be more um but they had 23 search teams across the state of new york six of those teams were dog teams like that's pretty much like that's all they did was uh, uh, dogs. So there was, uh, and like regionally across, like New York's a pretty big state. Um, and we, uh, you know, probably every like two to three hour drive, you could find another SAR team for dogs. Okay. And 
Yeah. And my SAR team was pretty much between my area and two hours away. And um, okay. I had, you know, sought that out. I was basically what happened was I was I was training a dog that had just tremendous tracking potential. And I had done um, tracking with my wired hair uh, Vishla that I had when I was hunting. I taught her the track back home. Like I'd be in the Adirondack Mountains in the middle of nowhere so with no GPS. And I would, you know, I just regular orienteering and following the dog and having a good time young and dumb in my early 20s and uh you know tell the dog to smell my hand i say track home she'd turn around and just go right back the way we came even if we're out there for four hours you know and and uh i'd worked really hard on that had a great time and then when i started to work with the shepherd that had just had unparalleled natural ability where the dog was just telling you i am a tracking dog (laughs) i need to do this um so i started to do with that owner and that family and uh, i ended up calling that breeder just anytime I work a dog that I really love, I always get the breeder contact and say, Hey, this might not mean nothing to you, but it means a world to me. You're doing an awesome job. Yeah. Keep it up, you know? And, and then sure. like by the end of that conversation, I had a deposit on it, a dog. Um, so then we, uh, we joined, a uh, the closest search and rescue team, Eagle Valley search dogs. And, uh, you know, within, uh, just being who I am and my obsessiveness, you know, pretty much in less, less than a year, I was the training officer for that team. Yeah. And uh, we had 13 dogs on the team. And uh, some of them were uh, multidisciplined dogs. Um, most of them um, were, uh, you know, single-use single, single use dogs, whether it be Wilderness Area Search, which were always cross-trained in live finding cadaver, the uh, scent discriminant tracking trailing, and then we had cadaver-only dogs that lots of times mm. were for um, water work and stuff. But yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah so it was a not-for-profit. I loved it, and I only uh, I gave it up for two reasons. Uh, the first being that the, that that dog that uh, I had mentioned, I got a track and trailing dog that was basically a huge part of my core, had died um, at a, uh, unexpectedly at near seven years old, and that just ripped my whole heart out mm-hmm. uh, from, from it. And between that and... Um, you know, it is a not-for-profit as I think it should be. And I think it's great. Um, but, uh, being a training officer, helping train 13 dogs during the week when you're trying to train 40 other people's dogs, it's hard to make a living doing it, you know, and, and doing that, you know, like anything you got to do it often. So we're training like three times a week and it's just, uh, it just became a lot, but it was, uh, uh, one of the most profound and important, uh, points in my life and the development of me as a dog handler. Um, yeah that that far reached beyond uh um search and rescue itself for sure sure yeah no, and mm-hmm. I, I part of the reason i ask is i i've had some really good conversations over the years obviously just like you and anyone else who's you know come across good people in their time and i i met a guy several years ago he was in new york as well uh, uh police he was a police officer nypd guy and he, he, we were at a trade show, a hunting show, and he came up to me and we were talking trackings. We were talking, we were, we, we carry some products for training tracking dogs for wounded game. And so mm-hmm. he came up to the booth. We started talking about training dogs and I didn't know him. He didn't know me. And, and by the end of it, uh, I mean, it was getting kind of, he's from New York and I'm, you know, I'm, I'm about as Wisconsin as it gets. And so the conversation is, I'm wondering if the guy's pissed at me. I don't know, you know, just his, just his mannerisms <laughs> and his tone. And by the end of it, he, by the end of it, he, he says, boy, I, you know, I really enjoyed this. And I'm thinking to myself, Christ, I thought you were going to fight me maybe halfway through. But <laughs> he, he ended up, uh, he, he introduced himself. Uh, I'll never forget it. His name was Mitch Sterling. And he, uh, 
was an NYPD guy, but he trained canine. Um, he, he was a canine officer, and he would train dogs for for tracking. And it was in the city. Mm-hmm. I mean, he's talking he's yep. talking about you know tracking off of uh, skin cells and and, ex- yeah. and adrenaline and these different oh, yeah. clues that he's using on crime scenes. Mm-hmm. And I'm just thinking, man. And I, I kept in touch with him for several years. Um, very good guy, but I I think it's one of the most powerful contacts i've made over the years from a mm-hmm. from a from an understanding trying to understand a little bit better and i think that's always what i'm trying to do is try to understand stuff a little bit better and he really was a great source of information regarding uh scenting you know and, and yeah, i've, I've no, picked it's... up over the years some of your podcasts that you've been on it's mm-hmm. always very interesting to me it's way over my head admittedly <laughs> and it's uh but I, but i feel like sometimes i have to just take a step back and go uh I'm going to read the dog and, and, yep. and like, but I also think that there's value in understanding why the dog is doing what he's doing. And then when you can connect all those dots, it's like, you just get a little bit deeper, if you will, more layers in and the more layers you get in the, I think ultimately the, you know, the better it ends up, but. Yeah. Um, I mean, uh, I, uh, we'll see how far we get with some of the stuff here, uh, today. I mean, uh, sure. um, uh, you know, scent theory and behavior, um, uh, to me, in the bird dog world, is the uh, the biggest thing that people lack. Um, yeah, uh, yeah. And I mean that from the top of the ladder down. <laughs> um, uh, it's just something that uh, it's just the way that it has been. And uh, I, I have a million sayings, but one of the things that I say all the time is, you know, it's, you know, bird hunting is as simple or as complicated as you want to make it but the more questions yeah. you start to ask the more complicated you're choosing to make it you know sure so sure. Yeah, um, that makes sense. you know yeah so it's just a matter of uh uh you know you know how deep or what layer do trainers and owners want to go and the deeper you go with some of those layers uh, now you start talking about uh genetics and why certain trainers choose such dogs and yeah all that kind of stuff. And I actually, I, I, I hope and plan to, to talk about uh, some of that, but on, on yeah, a different, sure. uh, different subject, but please tell everybody yeah. about, uh, about yourself. Sure. Yeah. Uh, first off, man, I really do appreciate you reaching out. Um, so I, my story is nowhere near as, 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 as in depth. I don't think I, it's much, it's probably a little more simplistic, but my background is when it comes to dogs, I'm, um, so we've got a very, we've got a small company and essentially it's built on the idea of products, uh, training products mm-hmm. that I've either developed or tweaked or found to be just, uh, they work really well for me for, for reasons. And, and I feel like we've built a business around that and, uh, and it allows me to do something I'm really passionate about. Um, I think that a very important part of that is the, the being a practitioner and, and using it. And I just think that that, that is not only does it help it, it's, it's, you know, in a lot of, in a lot of ways it impacts, like it helps with marketing. It helps with, um, conversations like this. You got to be able to walk the walk if, you know, if you're going to talk the talk. So I just feel like that over the years, it's something that I've become more and more and more, um, drawn into. And now it's, I'm just like everybody else where we're just kind of, it, it becomes, it becomes a very, very important part of your life. And the dogs are, the dogs are that. And for me, it's, the dogs lead to people and I, I really like, I really enjoy, um, helping with people. And I think 
the idea for me is to maximize what these dogs have to offer. We'll never be able to get, I don't think we ever get it all out of them. They just, they just have too much. And, and I, I feel like I, I owe it to them to at least do, do my best to get the most out of that relationship. And if we can help other people do that as well, that's, that's really kind of our goal. So my personal, you know, background with dogs was, um, you know, I, my very first dog was a nightmare. Like we had a Dalmatian. We bought, I was a kid and I was really little. Um, I mean, I was, I was probably six or seven years old, old enough to remember, but, and be scarred probably by it. But we had, we, we, we watched the movie just like everybody else in the eighties. And, um, we ended up, we ended up getting one and we, we didn't train it and it became a real, a real handful. And it was to the point where it was creating a lot of issues. Uh, it bit my sister. It, it had, we had neighbors that were afraid to have their kids playing at our house. There's all this stuff. And one morning I remember waking up and <laughs> dog's name was Domino. And I look and here's Domino's dog house in the back of a hatchback driving down our driveway. And, and I looked at my parents and I said, what's going on here? And they, well, Dom, these people have a farm and they're going to, you know, that Domino's going to have a really nice house there. And I was so mad. I mean, come <laughs> on, you, you know, so, so that's my first experience with a dog and we didn't have a dog for a long time after that. And so thankfully, you know, my dad, my dad was, uh, he was, he worked a lot more than he hunted, but he was a pretty passionate hunter and he had buddies that had real nice hunting dogs, golden retrievers, um, mainly. And he, thank God for them being in our lives because that was always the thing we could go back on as kids to say to our parents, yeah, but, but they have that good dog. And they, so finally years, years later, we're older and my sisters and I, and we kind of can have some responsibility. They did decide we got a puppy out of that, that one golden retriever that was the best. And we took a, we got a pup out of them. And, um, that kind of hooked our family back into dogs cause it was a golden and it was just, a, it was just a really nice dog. And, despite our lack of understanding of dogs, it turned out really nice. And so my mom ended up, um, she did a very small breeding, uh, into her early retirement years and she's kind of hung it up now, but, um, you know, she'd breed a litter or two, or she'd breed a litter every year or every other year. And so I was always kind of around it. And I finally got old enough to be able to kind of start working some of those dogs more as a upland dog, pheasant hunting primarily, and fell in love with that. And, but I, again, it wasn't, not, not to any extent or degree of like what I would call myself a trainer. And then I went off to college and, and met, ran into and luckily met um, some really good, good guys from um, Minnesota area. They're big waterfall guys and bought a lab because I felt like I had to have a lab. And um, my sophomore year of college, I took my, fr- my sophomore year, I had brought my parents gold and, and I, hu- I had that at our house and hunted with it. And then I said, no, I want to have my own. And um, bought a lab that, that year. And, and that was kind of where I, I turned a lot more serious about it and, um, put in, put in a lot more work, got a lot more results. The dog was just really good, which, you know, that I think it's a pretty common thing. I think good dogs suck you in, you know, like you get stuck. And so that one was the one that kind of tipped that one. I'll always credit with the idea of me getting more serious about training. And then from Mm -hmm. there, I, then I got out of school, had a little more money, bought, bought, bought another dog, spent a little more money on a dog. And, and then it was a real, and I, all the while I was not thinking of doing dog training. I was, my background is construction. My dad, my grandpa, my, my grandpa's grandpa, we were all carpenters. And so went to college for construction and 
and ended up doing construction afterwards. And, and I ended up um, really liking the dogs and, and working with the dogs more than I did uh, pouring concrete. And I ended up uh, training dogs for people that I knew through the company I was working for, uh, just on the mm-hmm. side. And, um, sure. and, then, and then it was, you know, we evolved into this. I'm a big deer hunter and I had a, a lot of passion for deer hunting and that kind of got in the way of some of the deer dog stuff. And, and I, I had heard about guys using dogs to shed hunt and I was pretty interested in it. There really was nothing out there to, to show you how to do it or help you how to do it. It was very, very, I mean, back then we're talking shed hunting, like shed antlers. Yep. It was, you'd ask to shed hunt and people didn't know what you're talking about. They, they thought you're <laughs> talking about like a little garage. So, so I ended up, I ended up like I had a dog I I went through this process. I threw an antler for it, and it poked itself. And it was real turned off by the whole process and kind of afraid of them. And I thought about it, and I thought, I've never introduced a, a bird dog to a, a rooster pheasant and hoped I had to get a bird dog out of it. It just wasn't going to work. Too many variables, too many things that were uncontrolled. And I looked at my process of, well, you I introduce it incrementally. You know, I... I start out with a balled up sock. I went to a puppy bumper. I tape some wings to it. I add some scent. I get to the bird eventually. And I thought, why not do the same thing? So that was kind of this, this idea of mine while I'm doing construction. Of, there's nothing out there to help a guy train a dog to shed hunt. So I developed this training dummy for, ant, for shed antlers and patented it. And I moonlighted. I mean, I did it all at night and um, worked construction during the day. And finally, it got to the point where it turned it, it actually got some traction i went to a show and um picked up some accounts with it and next thing you know i'm going man i don't have the time or money to do both and i decided <laughs> to take the plunge so that was yeah. where i got into to business with it but my background with birds was always you know i grouse hunted up i'm from up in northern wisconsin originally uh-huh. and, um grouse were you know uh, we call them partridge i never heard of grouse until i moved down to green bay area but so until you got off the trails, right? That's when yeah, you started bearbat grouse. <laughs> right, right, exactly. So, but yeah, so I I had bird hunted quite a bit with these dogs, and um, you know, for us now as a business, in in it, it evolved our business. We went from some of the shed stuff to to tracking and game recovery stuff because I was doing that with with our dogs, and I was doing that for some clients' dogs, and then. I'm, I can't get away from bird hunting with dogs. If it has anything to do with dogs, I like it. And so, (laughs) and I am a big hunter. I mean, I just, I live for hunting and, and, but you take the dog out of the equation and it just loses, uh, the, the draw for me. So that, that kind of brought us, you know, I mean, it's been, I want to say it's been, it was about 2010 is when we've really kind of, when I, 2009, 2010 is when I made the change from construction to, to uh, our brand is called Dogbone, and from there it's just kind of slow, slowly grown and um, continues to slowly grow. But it's just something I, I mean, I can't get enough of it. I, I I love it, and from a training perspective, I I could get so much. I know I can get a lot better, and I know that you know I've done enough now that I'm pretty pretty comfortable and pretty confident with the style that I'm using. I don't mm-hmm. call it. I don't call it it's not my way i've i've picked and i've i've robbed and stolen and you know shifted and and made it a little tweak here and a little tweak there and i've just kind of kind of gone along and and tried to pick up as many barnacles as i could and then figure out what works best for me and um so it's a real hybrid that i think my approach i i listen to a lot of 
stuff. Like I'm listening to a really interesting podcast right now that's a agility trainer that's a not purely positive, I guess, but she's I don't know the terminology, but she's using sure. a lot. She's not using force, and so. And then, you know, how we ended up connecting in this is, you know, the last couple podcasts that I was talking with some guys that are in the retriever world as well. And they're um, using a different approach um, when it comes to some of the force stuff and some of the some of the philosophies that go along with that. And it's just different than what I do. And I I'm pretty I'm a pretty passionate person, I think. And when I feel pretty strongly about stuff, I do have a hard time. biting my tongue at times. And, but I also realize it's not my place to tell someone else how to raise their kids. And it's not my place to tell them how to raise their dogs. And so, sure. but I found that over the years, the more comfortable I've been and the more, the more I look at, you know, if we sell someone a product, I want them to be able to use it effectively. It's the best, it's in my best interest. <laughs> so when I, in order to do that, you have to share some information. And over the years I've realized the more information we share, the more response back or feedback I get from folks that say, I really appreciate that approach. I didn't think I could do it that way. I've always heard I had to do it this way. And, and, and there isn't a whole, there is trends and there are fads and there are, but like you said, I, I take it as a real compliment when you say, you know, the training style that you kind of, that I think you embrace is maybe more, the more old fashioned style. Like I, I like that. That's, that's good. Yeah. And, yeah. and so, so that's kind of where we, we, we come back to where we are now. And I do think that I'm, I'm proud to be, a, a um, I'm proud to get a message from someone that says that I've gotten, gotten quite a few and over the years and, and it, I'm not looking to fight. I don't want to, I'm not a fighter. I don't, it's not worth it to me to pick a fight or debate with somebody about, um, right, wrong, or different. You do what works for you. But I also think if someone asks, how are you doing that? Or why are you doing that? I have no issue with, with sharing that um, in the hopes that it helps. Helps maybe make yeah. a decision for somebody. or So that's kind of where, I don't know if that answers. I don't, I'm sure. a long, I'm a real jabberer. So I'll, Yeah, well, so hey, the, all, my, all my people, uh, you know, I'm the TMI guy. So um, for sure, know, I'm sure, I'm sure, uh, I'm sure our, uh, our other responsibilities will end up pulling us away from this conversation at the end here. But, um, you know, the, uh, uh, so yeah, no, that, that, that's all, that's all great. Um, I guess the, the, to, to start to just get into some subjects and we're unlike the, uh, recent podcast you've been on, we're not going to get, uh, uh, in depth specifically on force fetch and, uh, but it's something obviously that, that kind of, started this snowball of sure. of uh interviews for you yeah. um you know but like for me um i don't know if you've been on my paint river site or not but i have right on the home page you know like part of like my requirements and policies is you know my dogs will not be force fetched sure um you know they won't have flank collars put on them and i do that for a couple of reasons i mean one i'm very particular about protecting my dogs um of the genetic type that i bring into this world you know i'm breeding them to be a certain way a certain temperament a certain style and uh some modern day tools um depending upon that individual dog and in a higher percentage of my dogs for what i've selected for over the years um has uh way more cons than pros um and it kind of disallows them to be who they who they are um Mm -hmm. 
And uh, so for me, you know, that's kind of that's kind of where I come from with that. And there's a aspect to that that I feel having listened to you talk uh, for a couple hours on the subject, uh, you know, uh, you uh, at, at least uh, have a parallel feeling with that to a degree. And um, I guess, you know, vocabulary, again, is always important when we're having these conversations because people will have three definitions for the same yeah, word, yeah. you know. But I mean, to me, to me, force fetch is when you are physically making the dog do the retrieve, you know, <laughs> um, as far as, you know, going out, bring it back the whole, yeah. obviously the big aspect to that. Um, but, uh, and, and, and I'm a, I am very obsessive about my dogs retrieving, uh, you know, doing their job in a hunting capacity, mm-hmm. um, uh, on upland birds. Um, but it's, it's, a it's more a matter of taking what the dog has um, shaping it, doing the very, very best I can, um, and as making as many little baby steps to prevent any bad habits along the way, um, Mm -hmm. and doing it daily to get where I want to be as fast as I can, but never rushing through the step that I'm in until that is like totally satisfied to continue to encourage that natural retrieve, that naturally trained retrieve, um, the whole time. And I, and it's an aspect to, to the, um, uh, you know, the, the, the total package hunting dog, um, that I feel, and I always say like the point is the adrenaline, uh, mm-hmm. part of the hunt and the retrieve is the heartwarming part. And there's a part of me that, uh, I just can't put force in the heartwarming part of a hunt. Yeah. Um, it's just, that's just how I am. And I, I'll do everything I can to get as much as I can, but uh, piggybacking a bit on um, the gentleman that you've had conversations with, and Bob Owens and uh, Grayson Geyer, is there's a, there's this um, you know perhaps uh, trial competition element, uh, the the uh, a word that I don't use with any aspect of retrieving um, uh, ever is precision. <laughs> um, you know, for me, it's, uh, I, I just don't, I don't need, you know, I'm all about what do I need from this sure. dog, you know, and, and it's, uh, my need in regards to after the shot is I need that dog to, you know, um, search and locate and bring back to me where I can take it from its, take it ideally from its mouth. But I got dogs that, they're they're great after the shot dogs and uh you know i i could choose to quote unquote clean it up and have them not drop the bird at my feet you know and and i do everything i can to promote it just it just depends on on the dog as to how much you might have to finesse and to what degree but um anyhow that that's a that's kind of a vague but insightful direction from where i come from uh, with, uh, my retrieving. Um, uh, so, you know, one of the, besides these conversations that I, I've, I've heard you have of late as to why I want you on the show, you now have joined the ranks of being, uh, an English setter owner and, um, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, within the world of setters, um, you know, you can have lines of dogs that are, you know, fantastic retrievers you know that could potentially rival labs on land you know to um 
you know, they just don't have any interest. So, sure. um, you know, on a, on a individual basis, I, I know you're on your first pointing dog right now, but, um, you know, I, I, I kind of wanted to bring your dedicated background of having retrievers um, uh, certainly, uh, everybody that's listened to me and taken the time to listen to your other interviews prior to listening to this one, um, you know, uh, knows your, your, your background, a lot of retriever people very well, you know, probably know who you are, but, um, maybe, uh, I, I think I heard in your, uh, other interview that your dog, your dog's around a year and a half now, your setter. Yeah. Um, yeah, she, she is, um. I think she's just about 17 months. So. Okay. Yeah. So, um, yeah, let's, uh, let's just have a little conversation about, I guess, your, um, uh, take, take one of the things that you're, we'll say more specialized in and, and have, you know, much more years of history with, um, in, uh, the department of, uh, trying to, you know, get as much as you can out of that dog, yeah. um, uh, in a, non-force fetch manner um and yield some consistency and um you know uh with specifically just talking about your experiences uh with your uh with your setter yeah well <laughs> i got a big smile on my face you can't see it right now but <laughs> i got a big smile on my face and the reason is, is no one's ever asked me a damn thing about setters and never asked me <laughs> about pointing dogs so and and maybe with good reason you know you get you, but so thank you for doing that. So here, sure. here's, here's the thing I, I have found, you know, they're very different. Um, there's, there is no arguing that. And I had people tell me about, you know, how, well, you're in for a surprise and you, you know, buckle up and whatever. I, and I look at it and I go, I, you know, I'm only a, I'm only a little over a year into it at this point. And it's been one of the most enjoyable things I've done in a, in a long, long time. And the, one of the, there's a variety of reasons why I got her. Um, one of them, and it wasn't a primary reason, but a, a, it's coming to become a real valuable reason to me is how much better she's going to make me as a retriever trainer. And mm-hmm. it sounds Absolutely. weird, but, but it, it's really going to help. And I, 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 I have, it's, confer, it's kind of reaffirmed, working with her has kind of reaffirmed some of the things that I thought would would be there and then it's also been eye-opening in in with some things as well but um you know I, a dog's a dog <laughs> and, yeah, and i just don't right. know that i don't know that we can't that we hear that often enough um especially from like on a podcast or in a book or in a whatever it is because i think a lot of times who who is who is telling me that story or whoever's you know narrating that is a, is a quote unquote a specialist. And, you know, I think sometimes we make it sound like you got to be a specialist to do some of this shit. And I, I don't, I don't know, man, the dog's a dog to me. And, and I'm a big believer in the idea of everything is built on good foundations. And, and that's com- probably comes back. Um, you know, it, it probably is connected to like my background in life, which is, it's just building stuff, construction stuff. You, it's just a mm-hmm. real core, core element that's necessary and and we can get real excited about getting the to the parts that are more enjoyable whether it be aesthetics or you know the actual labor or whatever it is that's associated with it but if you don't have the part that's at the base it topples it just falls over and i think that's really true when it comes to dogs and i am not a um i i am a 
I'm boring as hell when it comes to dog stuff. Like I'm not flashy or exciting, and I, but I I have come to really love that part of a dog because I like I'm and it helps because it's typically not the most enjoyable or sexy part of training a dog. That that foundation part is a lot of times looked at I think as a, a real drag, and you know hurry up and get through it so we can get to the good stuff and. I think that's where a lot of problems come for, for folks. And yeah. we, do, we do training workshops where people bring dogs that they're just so far ahead. Of, they th- they, you know, the people are trying to put them so far ahead of where they really should be. And I think, it's, I think a lot of it has to do with not really understanding the big picture. And I think under, recognizing that the mindset for me with a dog is marathon. And I'm not a runner, so like this guy, this, someone will call BS on you right now because you know, they're gonna, they're going to see a picture of me and go, "He is not a runner." No, I'm not. But but I have run in my life, and and I feel like that mindset to be like. And when I say that, I, I mean I, I mean it. I ran like for a very short period of my time in my life. I I got into running a little bit, not like competitively, just like to get in shape. And it is a, it was a real eye opening thing of understanding that once you get through some of the early parts of that running and things start to loosen up and you get over this mental part of it, you just kind of get, you, you can hit a stride where you feel like you just don't want to stop, man. You just keep going, just keep going, just keep going. It's kind of a, and, and, and when I look at dogs, so that mindset is different than the guy who says, I can see the end of the, 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 the line to win, you know, the race, end of the race. I can see it and you got to get there as fast as you can. That's a very different mindset. And so I look at dogs as very much marathon versus sprint. And I also look at it as the best part of this whole damn thing is the middle. It's not, the end is going to be really sad. The beginning is to me boring because you're very limited with what you can do, but it's the middle part that is the best. And that's the part where, that's the part that, to me, it should take the most amount of time. And I think, you know, the, one of the questions that I spoke with Grayson about was the idea of started and, or I think finished was the words. Yeah. Yeah. I I was very, I hope I was very clear to say, I don't, I don't, everyone, that's a, that's another one of these vocabulary things. What does that mean? It's very subjective. And I look at it as they're never, never finished. My dogs are never finished. So, so for me with the setter, I, the, the foundation part has been so similar and I, and I'm a, I'm a stickler. Like I like good feet. I like to be, I like, I, when I start talking about control, I, I want to be sure that it's not like ruling with an iron fist type control. Like it's not this big dominating thing. I, what I want to have is confidence that the dog is working with me. And so to me, it's, it's not an individualized thing. I don't need a dog, especially, and this is what I'm running into with, or finding a little bit with the bird dog stuff is, I do see a big emphasis um, talked about when it comes to like the independence of the dog. And I've been, <laughs> I've been warned about not, not, not getting too much, you know, not getting in the way of that, you know? And I look at it and I go, holy shit, this dog has more inherent natural talent than I will ever be able to deal with. <laughs> like, I'm not concerned with that at all. Now, I, I think the problem is, so I, when I came into this because of my lab, you know, because of working with labs for so long, I, you know, they're with me. And when I say with me, I mean, it's both, it's, I'm a big believer in the idea of feel connection and trust. Like if Mm -hmm. I have those three things, boy, I can do just about anything with any dog. 
My uh, not to interrupt my list yeah. of three that I literally wore on my T-shirt for Kyle Warren dogs for 25 years is love, respect, trust, you know, with sure. a circle, yeah. you know, around, yeah, it, you right? know, and yeah. both ways. That's for both the dog and the human, you know, so totally, yeah, totally. You know? And when when you have that, I just think you're unstoppable. And and mm-hmm. and I think the dog feels the same way, you know, because I think they're with you. And so but with the labs, it becomes physical because. I do so much stuff at heel. Like to me, I would Mm -hmm. say people ask me a lot of times, you know, what's the most important thing I could train my dog. And for me, I do think it is heel. And I think it's understanding that heel is not taking a walk like heels a position. Mm -hmm. And so if I can get, if I can get what I need to get there, I feel like then I can start to work on getting it at a distance. But if I can't do it right next to me, I will never have a chance at a distance. And so I, I think that what is, you know, people have warned me. I, I, I heard about it and, you know, I, I, and you know what? I can't, I'm not out of the woods yet. So maybe I'm fucking this whole thing up. But <laughs> with, with, with this setter that I have, she heals, she heals very well and she's very, very well controlled. And I, I really enjoy her. I can do anything with her. I, I do any, I do all sorts of stuff with her. And, um, but I think what, where people's concerns came was, I think they thought that in order to get that, you had to be really hard on them. And mm-hmm. I think that when you do that, I can totally see where the concern was. If you put too much on these dogs as far as obedience is how it was described to me. Don't do too much yard work and don't put too much obedience into them because you're going to take away from what, they, what you need their confidence to do. And that's to go out and find birds for you and stand confidently and all that stuff. And I feel like I, I had a hard time understanding what the hell they were talking about when they said that. But I think it was because they didn't realize or maybe don't realize that my intentions of foundation stuff and heel work is not with a whole bunch of pressure. <laughs> yeah. She's, she's pretty happy. I mean, she's yeah. really happy when we're doing this. And so, so, you know, you know that, um, uh, so of the retriever world, um, I know nobody, know nothing, but, you know, uh, kind of we'll say, uh, using the, the force best, aspect of training um as uh it is it is kind of an american modern day standard thing that happens i feel um you know in general across america with people that are that are getting their dogs professionally trained often you know um and and it happens in navda it happens in the pointing dog world all the time as well um but uh i would when, when I when I heard you talking uh, on uh, Gun Doggy yourself, I was like, "All right, I'm I'm sending this guy a message right now, even before I finish this, because he he clearly, whether he knows it or not, he is a black sheep in the in the sea <laughs> of modern American dog training out of statistics, not because you're necessarily forging your own path of what people have never no. done before, but right. just statistically as a professional, mm-hmm. you're a black sheep." Well, now that you're entering the pointing dog world, if you have not learned already, you will learn that I am that black sheep. Um, and I wear that shirt proudly because um, sure. I also don't care what other people think yeah. about me. I care what my dogs think about me and the people that fancy the type of dog that I have, what they think. Um, yeah. But, um, yes, uh, I think, uh, uh, like, when you say uh, independence, like, for me, I'm I'm overall uh, breeding and selecting for dogs that are that are actually dependent you know the connection with the dog at all times while i'm hunting is is 
vital to me um, sure. uh, for both how I choose to hunt and the experience I choose to have. Um, and uh, yeah, I think, um, I think, you know, kind of taking that whole idea and looking at um, uh, the tools, our training tools, you know, that mm-hmm. we, that we utilize today. Yeah. I think everybody, and I, I, I play a part in this um, myself. Uh, I'm still an absolute minimalist with the e-collar as much as I can be. Um, but uh, uh, you know, the, it's, it becomes about um, this, the speed to which attain your goal, you know, mm-hmm. and I, uh, my worry, uh, you mentioned in both those podcasts and I'll mention it now as well, you know, um, like the, the, you know, there, t- you were talking with, uh, Grayson about, you know, various parts of Europe, you know, they've banned e-collars for use and stuff like that. And, and I don't want that either. Um, I do, mm-hmm. I do utilize the collar and I do think that people should be able to utilize tools, um, appropriately, um, uh, you know, for, you know, whatever they want. Um, but you know, all dogs are not created equal. And I, one of the issues uh, that I feel as a, as a trainer and breeder in this country is that we've bred dogs more and more so temperament wise that for the average handler, um, on the timetables that people desire require these training tools. Um, more so, you know, um, yes. and I like a softer dog. I like a dog that is less forgiving because it keeps me in check as a handler, as a human mm-hmm. being. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I, I bred, I bred military grade shepherds for almost 10 years, you know, bred to get shot five times and take down the perp, you know, sure. um, sure. I had to be a different type of person to a degree, you know, um, right. then what, you know, my setters, which collectively in comparison, I'll call fainting goats, you know, um, you know, there's, uh, just, there's a different animal and there are parallels in terms of how we can and want to behave, but there's always a spectrum of, uh, our presentation, you know, in accordance with the dog that we're working with in front of us and what they're offering us based on our, our engagements. But yeah, the, uh, the idea with our training tools that, um, you know, and, you know, you, you've mentioned, you know, some of these uh, uh, previous convos, but, you know, our slip collars, uh, martingale collars, prong collars, e-collars, head harnesses, body harnesses, you know, I mean, all these things were yeah. created by design to make training easier, you know, mm-hmm. um, and and they do serve their purposes in a lot of respects. But the more the more tools we add um to our regimen, the, um, uh, there's a layer of separation that, um, I feel, and I, I think you, you might feel as well, um, that while, you know, people like Grayson, who, uh, that there's not many people around the country that I recommend, um, uh, that I would send my dogs to that I could count on one hand, actually less than that. And he is one of those people that I, you know, uh, feel very comfortable with, um, because I do think that he, uh, looks at the dog in front of him and and is is a good dog, man. Um, uh, but yeah, the, the, I think the, the easier, the faster, the, you know, living in an imperfect world with, with, uh, uh, you know, millions of novice handlers living in that imperfect world, (laughs) you know, um, brings about, uh, these tools and in my capacity for utilizing the e-collar, um, I, I use it as a 
uh, you know, for, for, uh, recall. Um, but, uh, I don't, you know, I don't teach it that way. I teach everything else first without it. Actually, I, my dogs often don't even wear a collar until they're four months old. Sure. And that's kind of when I start my formal stuff and we pick up the, we pick up that flag and we don't put it down. Um, and, uh, you know, for me, um, I, I feel it's interesting, something that for you, um, uh, you know, we might differ a little bit, um, is like, so for me, a, a saying that, uh, I'm always like putting the kibosh on that I kind of feel is an excuse, you know, is, uh, you know, with people's first hunting season with their puppy, I always, I'm always, they're always saying, let a puppy be a puppy. And, and I always ask people to define what that means. Um, because to me and listening to you, um, you know, uh, you're very much sounds like, you know, once you get rolling, you know, like you're very structured, you're all about, you know, making sure that we're making sure there's no early stage mistakes and everybody makes mistakes. I mean, you know, I always tell people that come to my seminars and workshops and clinics, you know, I was like, I'm making mistakes. I just happen to, you know, make less mistakes than anybody here that we're, <laughs> where it's going yeah. on. You know I mean? We all make mistakes and, uh, mm-hmm. um, you know, uh, but the fewer that you make, the more you can set that dog up for success that way. Um, you know, and yourself that way, uh, uh, the, the better. So for me, I mean, I've always felt like learning season is 365 days a year, hunting season is a hundred days a year. And, and, uh, you know, we don't put off our training hat when, when, uh, September 15th rolls around in the North woods. Um, and, uh, I do think that, um, a lot of the pointing dog community, uh, and this isn't a bad thing it's different um you know a lot of people i think do have designs on uh at least when we're talking about in the capacity of like professional training and stuff a lot of people do have designs on uh pushing the dog towards labeling it as whatever on the spectrum of finished dog that one might want to do and for me i i'm personally not that way you know i want a dog to walk on a leash stop when told, come when called. Uh, and I'll start doing that. Um, yeah, I, I will not step foot in the woods on opening day, whether it's a five month old puppy or a 12 month old puppy, unless they can do those things under any circumstances. Uh, and for me that ensures successful contacts. Every time the puppy has an encounter with a bird, I'm able to as much as possible ensure that as much as possible as I can, it's learning from it what I want it to learn from it. Um, I'm not leaving it up to just happenstance that the that X number of contacts is going to equal more caution. I'm not mm-hmm. I'm not leaving. And yet, you know, we have these genetically predisposed dogs that everybody selects for for what they their niche and what they like um, that should be able to all that exposure. You know, wild birds make wild bird dogs, um, but in terms of the connectivity and it being a team sport and getting the most operational years out of the dog as possible, you know, um, I, I tend to be on the up opposite side of let a puppy be a puppy. But what I will say is if, if I have a dog that's born in April and I'm hunting with it, you know, <laughs> uh, in September, you know, uh, what I demand of that dog, I don't demand any more myself, yeah. um, out of my five-year-old dog, my dogs break on the flush. I get burned early season, maybe 10% of the time. Cause there's a covey in there or whatever. Um, but overall, um, you know, I'm kind of, I don't know. I think for what a lot of people is I'm kind of with puppies and, 
I'm a very low pressure guy. I mean, I, I, I made a whole very simple, very direct, straightforward training series on raising my specific type of dog for my people because so many people are using other modern day models mm -hmm. for training pointing dogs and you're screwing up dogs that are totally fine, you know? Sure, um, sure. So I'm a very low pressure guy, but, you know, very much putting focus on developing, you know, maximizing that puppy's potential through training bird contacts, through obedience, through a million simple step, you know, encouraging retrieving. Um, and so I have that puppy operational, you know, as it's right. working its way through its first season. Now, obviously, five month old isn't going to compete with a with a, right. a five year old, you know, but, sure. um, you know, it's just a, it's just that kind of uh, uh, perspective. So I um, uh, I'm. And I know you're new to the pointing dog scene, but uh, I'm curious, uh, you know, about your uh, as you started to talk about, like, you know, the independence and stuff like that. There's there's elements there that, you know, when I was hearing you talk in these other aspects of, you know, where I where I positively label you as a black sheep yeah. from my perspective. Um, I'm curious now as you come into the pointing dog world and you see how pointing dog, you know, the modern day American pointing dog people uh, I, I run my dog silent on a Garmin alpha, you know, I, so I have my training buttons on there. Um, but it's, it's such a, a, a back burner element for me. Yeah. And a lot of, uh, a lot of what resonated with me, um, uh, when listening to you, uh, you know, was very much what makes me, I feel a, a little bit, um, black sheepish in the pointing dog world. And, uh, anyway, uh, that's supposed to be a compliment. I don't know if it sounded like one or uh, not, but <laughs> yeah, no, I, you know? I do. I, yeah, I appreciate that, man. And I think, you know, you, you had started out on some of the tool stuff and, you know, I want to be really clear too, and I, and I, it'll be a broken record, uh, if you listen to those other podcasts, but worth saying, I think, and I, I am not against, I'm not against people using a collar yeah. uh, and, and, and I think that I, you know, there was I'm listening to this podcast right now and I, and this gal was brought up the idea of banning she's in favor of banning them and making them illegal and we talked about I talked about it a little bit with Grace and I think he figured I was probably in that kind of feeling mm -hmm. kind of had that feeling too and so I'm not a, I'm not for I like I like rights I like freedoms and I love our country and that's one of the best parts about it I think and so I am definitely if there was up to me to vote on the banning of collars, I would say no. We're not. Don't do that. What? What? Because I because I don't want to lose. I, I don't want to lose the the rights. It's the principal idea behind it. But I also think that if it were voted to be banned, it, what what I would be very glad is I, it won't it won't affect me because yes. I don't rely on them. And so mm -hmm. those those who would who those who would be affected by the ban of it are where I get concerned because I go, man, you can't be so reliant on a tool in order to do the job, mm -hmm. and 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 to me that's that's where I like I look at it and I go, no, I don't want them illegal, but I definitely think that part of it is because it just it wouldn't bother me, you know, I I, I wouldn't it wouldn't have an effect yeah. on me. I do think that some of this tool stuff is as simple. Like I am pretty simple with the tools, and when we start talking about some of this stuff. When you say let a I that let a be, let a puppy be a puppy, I hear that all over every every <laughs> every aspect. Whether you are of the dog world, you, yeah. yeah, it's just such a cliche thing. And I and I'm I'm a I'm on board with it. 
let a puppy be a puppy. The problem is, is your idea and my idea of puppies are very different. Mm -hmm. And so letting them be the puppy is, you know, I, I do let them be a puppy. And I, I feel like most people think, you know, I'm a dictator as the, as the leader. And I look at it and I go, no, I, I let my kids be kids, but I don't let them be, do whatever they want with whatever impulse or compulsion. That's a, those are buzzwords in my mind that we don't, we talked about, we talked, I've talked about them quite a bit over the last couple of weeks here with people, but I hate them. I do not yeah. believe in them. And so the idea with that is I think they find themselves getting into trouble. And so with my kids, I won't let them just be a kid until they're 18 and then decide to start putting in some morals and ethics and <laughs> exactly. pointing them in the right direction. Cause yeah. I'll have to bail them out at that point. I can't yeah. blame a kid for getting into trouble if he has no leadership. Yeah. So the same is true with these little pups. I think shaping from the beginning is just so very important and beneficial because it makes my life, it, it allows me to do what I want to do with these dogs later down the road when in a much easier fashion and with a lot less stress on me and them, if I allow, if I, if I take this approach of they're always learning and I'm always training, so let's make sure we're not putting bad habits in and try to try to accent the opportunity for good habits at all times. And like retrieving is part of that. I, mm -hmm. that if you have to train a dog to retrieve, if you have to force a dog, and I think that's the problem with some of that force fetch stuff is I think a lot of those guys, it's, they don't use it to, they're not, it really isn't connected to retrieve. It's a, it's an, it's a way of training in general. And, mm -hmm. and I look at it and I go, Man, for me, if you break down the idea of it simply for retrieve, benefit of retrieve, shaping and, and making a nice delivery and ensuring that your dog picks up, doesn't blink on stuff, comes right back to you, there is some function and there is some fashion for me in it. I do like the way a dog looks when it delivers nice. and So I, I, I want all that stuff, but I feel like they've been bred for hundreds of years to do this, guys. Like, we, don't, we, don't, we don't have to. We should get the hell out of the way when it comes to the stuff that they do best. And yeah, we can shape it because I am going to ask them to deliver it a certain way that may or may not be what it has been pre-programmed pre to do. Mm -hmm. But if, if you ask a pointing dog guy, I've never heard anybody even think about this conversation, but how, where, what happened to the force point? Where did the force point go? Well, it never existed <laughs> because there's no such thing. You yeah. don't force dogs to point. I don't think you force retrievers to retrieve. And I don't think, mm -hmm. you know, I don't know that my my experience is as, as deep as a 10-minute Google search, but find, trying to find out where the, who the hell came up with this idea of force fetching. And, yeah. and I don't mean to go off on a tangent here, but the idea of it, man, I, I found was it was a pointing dog trainer. And I think it was the late, late 1800s, early 1900s is where it was first maybe written about, but I'm sure guys did it before, but it was taking this dog that didn't have a natural retrieve and trying to figure out a way to get this pointer to retrieve. And I also read that retriever trainers for 50 years following were dead set against it. Like absolutely yeah. not. Yeah. Well, hell, that's what I like. I, I like the idea of let's not, because what it all back then, it was so important because it led to breeding stock. And so yes. goes, now, now we're starting to talk about like, what's the purpose of this whole thing in the first place? Like to me, it's get the best end product with the least amount of my getting in the way or, oh, yeah. or nurturing or having to like nurture. Yes. Force or, or drive. I don't think that's, I don't think that's the role of me as a handler. And yeah. I think that 
you can so I think that that's you know probably opens up lots of cans of worms, but some of the tool stuff i I'm a really big believer in i and I don't know what you use, but with little puppies and with young dogs and i i I call them all puppies till they're probably two, so it you know puppies two and under you'll never see a dog of mine carrying rubber dummies and i I see it so often in the retriever world where the rubber dummy is such a it's such a commonly used thing. Well, they're cheap. They're two bucks a piece. They're made in China. And, but they create these dogs. But the combination, I think, of the actual thing that you're putting in the dog's mouth, coupled with the outside stress that it feels, it's almost like giving the dog a release to some of that pressure and stress that it's feeling. And I notice it, and I watch it, and I see And I have people come to workshops, and they'll bring a bag of, of these rubber dummies, and they're always the ones that have the worst hold. They're always the ones who have the worst mouths. Mm-hmm. And so I do think that mouth is and can be very much an, an inherited thing. And I, as, oh, yeah. as a breeder for, you know, I do, a, I, don't call, I, don't, I don't hardly call myself a breeder, but I breed a litter occasionally out of very select dogs. And I, I, it's one of the things that's, it, and we're talking retrievers, it's one of the things that is one of the most, it's very high on my list. Like I, I want to make sure that, and if it isn't, if the dog doesn't have it, if the dog struggles with it, the issue is, is we, we've become very good at training stuff and we, we can work around flaws. Like we we've gotten good at covering shit up. And the problem is, is that if that happens, like throws like, and so you're going to see it again. You're going to see it again. And when you start talking about like the norm or the standard, do all dogs need to be force fetched in the labs world? No. Do they all need to be trained to the car? Absolutely not. But it's become such a, I'm an, I'm crazy for saying that that what I say is what kind of a lot, I catch a lot of hell for it, but you'd be surprised. And this little setter of mine right now, you know how nice of a mouth she has? Like, and I've, I've taken a different approach to her, to her retrieving. Um, I've not put much of an emphasis on it. I, you know, and I don't put a ton of emphasis on my labs either, especially when they're young. Cause I, all I want to know is that they got it. And as soon as I know they got it and they usually tell me because they carry shit around all the time. And is that tells me they want something in that mouth. They want something in that mouth. And so I just encourage that delivery and hold with just about everything from the beginning. And I make sure less is more like, one of my buddies told me, I just trained a dog. I, I, I sold it to a friend um, at a little over a year old. And it was a breeding, it was out of a breeding of ours. And it was, a, uh, out of, it was third generation. So it was, I was real interested. I wanted to train it um, and see how he did. And yeah, I was very happy. But he, he, had, he had the best I've, I've had and worked with when it comes to mouth and delivery. And it's very intentional where he came from. But the idea with him my buddy, I did so little with him, so little, and but he was so freaking good. And he would, and my buddy said to me, it's a very good friend of mine that I do a lot of training with. He said, I was telling him about him, and the dog's name was Blue. And I said, man, he's just he's a he's really good. I really like him. And 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 he said, I said I'm not I'm hardly doing anything with him, but everything he's so sharp. He picks up on stuff. He's real intelligent. He said, yeah, but you you're, you started doing less and doing it better. And so he said, don't do more, do less better. And I thought, man, boy, does that make a lot of sense? And yeah. so if you don't have a lot, you know, it's, it's, you know it. If you start out with, 
If you start out with good raw materials, uh, it takes a lot less work. It takes a lot less, um, you know, you, you, you can kind of let them develop and you just help them. And, and to me, that is, that is just so important. But you can't wait. You can't wait till they're 18 years old and in bars to, before you decide to tell them, you know, you should behave. Like yeah. you gotta, so you gotta get out, you gotta get started with that stuff early. And, and that's the part that I like, you know, I, yeah. I love, I love those young dogs. Yeah. I mean, there's a, uh, I mean, I, I, I personally agree with 100% of everything that you said. And I mean, I've, I've said almost <laughs> the exact same thing. I mean, I, I, for, for maturity in the dog, I've always told my uh, students, you know, think of every month in a dog's life for the first 18 months, like a year in, in people, you know, sure. and, sure. uh, and I, and I kind of feel that's, that's relatively accurate. Um, in my experience when, when having worked with children and, and dogs yeah. and, you know, I mean, I have, a uh, 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 my youngest daughter just turned four and my, my older one will be six in June. And I mean, you know, my younger daughter start start going to like pre preschool, you know, this year at, yeah. you know, three plus years old, there's, there's not a ton of rules in in that grade, but there's rules. There's yeah. there's a, there's expectations mm-hmm. of behaviors, and when they don't happen, like you know, they're they're redirected back to how they should be behaving. Sure. You know, and sure. um, like so, if there's a if a three year old child, <laughs> you know, can have a very basic understanding of social engagement, you yeah. know, and learning, uh, there's no reason why a three or four month old puppy, you know. Um, yeah. that is not learning rocket science, it's just basic fundamental relationship interaction, um, you know, can't, can't do the same. Um, but, uh, yeah, no, you, you, uh, uh, I mean, you hit the nail on the head with, uh, with everything that you said. Um, I spoke to, oh God, it was probably 10 years ago, you know, when I, uh, more, so the line of setters that I have are, uh, Llewellyn setters, um, you know, strain of the English setter and within our own sure. little small gene pool. Um, I gotta do genetic testing. Uh, we don't have a big pool. And then when you start to select the type of dog that you want within a tiny pool, the pool gets even smaller. Right, <laughs> um, right. so it's been a long range plan of mine to like seek out dogs of the type of character, um, and style of hunting that, that works for me. And, mm-hmm. uh, knowing always that I might have to dabble back into the English setter pull at large, but my, my dogs are kind of like hybrids between the America, what, what America has come to think of the English setter and European, uh, style dogs. And, um, if anything, they favor more the European model, uh, with a lot of aspects to them. And I was speaking to a, a gentleman in Scotland, um, had to be 10 years ago now or so and and he kind of you know intentionally you know was very um uh you know arrogant in his statement you know with a lot of laughter after it saying you know and and uh and we were just talking about like breeding and genetics and and he said uh, you know in, in in america you guys train dogs but over here we breed them you know and uh and i and as he was finishing his sentence, I said, I agree 100%. <laughs> you know, like, sure. yeah. you know, it's, uh, there are, uh, aspects to selection. Now, again, I think America has, um, bred the dog they want, you know? Um, I yeah. mean, they've been yeah. very successful at breeding the dog that they want. Um, from my perspective, it's just a, a, a dog that, um, uh, requires, uh, a, a much higher, level of 
training and consciousness to get it to be as functional as we might want it to be. I mean, I've always the way that I landed on the on the dogs that I have today was, uh, you know, I was literally training forty dogs a week, um, and my dogs would go to work with me. But I'm, you know, the, just like the the carpenter's house is the one house that's yeah. not done. The dog trainer's dog might be, the, yeah. you know, yeah. the the dog that's totally finished all the time. Um, but, uh, these dogs are easy. They're easy. Yeah. You know, like yeah. I could, you know, I could do what I needed to do with them in very, very brief periods of time, structured time on a daily basis and still do everything else I had to do in my life and achieve the results that I wanted to achieve with the dogs. Um, and I, I think that's, uh, I don't know. I think we've, uh, I mean, I, by trade, I've been my whole life been a been a trainer, um, and I love doing it. Um, but I just feel like yeah, you know, we've there's aspects to it. we've we've just made it harder than it has to be. And while people that do utilize e collars for a lot of different aspects of their training, I don't know, I just feel it's like it's one step removed from your you know uh, uh, being in the dog's head with it. And, yeah. uh, yeah. that's something that, uh, again, I, I kind of, uh, felt, um, uh, that you, you very much could understand. And it's nice to have a conversation with somebody that's had their hands on a very good number of dogs. And, you know, a saying that I have that I think that you'd appreciate, um, is, uh, people have deadlines for dogs, but dogs don't have deadlines. Yeah. Um, yeah. you know, and I think, uh, you had referenced the saying, you know, like, you know, the comparison of the tortoise and the hare and you're the tortoise. Yeah. Um, you know, for, for me, you know, with my dogs, it, it, it kind of depends on the age of the dog, you know, for me, everything, everything's just got to be ready <laughs> by right. hunting season to make the most out of it. I don't like want to miss a year with it and stuff. So, so I just, you know, I don't hold any dogs back for myself that aren't going to be that five to six month old marker usually, um, when they're hitting their first season, if I can, if I can help it. And, um, and that just allows me to, to, you know, strive to thrive with them. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I think, um, one of the, one of the things that we, um, uh, often think about when we're, when we're training these dogs is, um, uh, you know, if we look at the positive, you know, and all these labels, I'm more like you. I mean, uh, uh, listening to the conversation with Grayson, you know, his vocabulary is way above my pay grade. Um, you know, I, I, I've, I've been a, a dog guy since I was 10. So like I, I, I bark, I scratch behind the ears and I <laughs> have a very basic vocabulary. Sure. Um, but, um, uh, you know, the idea, you know, of, of claiming, you know, positive reinforcement, the negative reinforcement, you know, positively, negatively reinforcing, you know, and <laughs> all, yeah, all these things. All I, that. Yeah, you know, um, I think that um, at the end of the day, uh, uh, you know, just like you use the schooling example for humans, um, I think life's not a bed of roses, but it doesn't mean that it has to be all thorns, you know, sure. kind of thing. Yeah. And yeah. Um, that's kind of how I feel dog train the reality of a tactile relationship with another mammal, you know, bridging communication barriers. Like that's life to me, and that's yeah, uh, yeah. I, I think I think you get that, and I feel that that's uh, that's a point of integrity um, in communicating with a dog, you know, uh, for its natural state. And I I agree with you when I've heard you speak about um, uh, you know getting 
getting more out of the dog uh, uh, naturally is is you know it's it's a better way to be now uh, I I did like um, uh, uh, Grayson's um, uh, point when he when he had said you know and again I, I there's there's almost no training tool that I haven't used and I, there's some that have stayed and uh, many have gone in my training practices over years and then some just come out for certain dogs given certain handlers you know in certain situations because it's just it is it is the route to success with that particular dog team and uh and that's kind of why i feel like all of these training tools have a place um but i as a trainer um it's influenced my breeding over the years to (laughs) select for dogs that that need as few of these tools as possible You know, so I'm just connecting with them on a very fundamental primal mammalian relationship. And, uh, uh, you know, but something that Grayson had said, you know, and, you know, so if we label you as the, you know, you're just not going to use an e-collar. It's just not you. It's not in the fiber of your being. You've kind of proven to yourself through your experiences with your own dogs that you don't need to use it. And even if, you know, um, you're the tortoise, you know. To get to that finished dog status, you know, you embrace that journey to get to that point. And it is what it is with the dog that you have, you know. Um, mm-hmm. And so at least that was my interpretation of that, of, yeah. of, of you with that. And and Grayson had said at one point in your conversation, you know, and one of the things that, um, you know, was was good, you know, like the semantics, right, to, to sound very, you know, um, you know, PC and very publicly acceptable, you know, when people say like stimulation, you know, rather than shock or zap, yeah. you know, yeah. or, or pain, like uncom- mm-hmm. discomfort, you know, and, yeah. you know, all, all those things to just make it, make it sound more digestible, um, uh, you know, and, and so like, you know, using the slip lead, you know, all these things in terms of applying uh, pressure and varying degrees of pressure and e-collars can have all varying degrees of pressure, of course. Um, but he his his advocating for the collar in the sense of saying like well you know you are still applying pressure and training when we're using these other devices to varying degrees and I think that at the end of the day and you completely agreed with that you know yeah, um, as yeah, I would for, sure. for myself too um, but yeah it's just a matter of the use of these I mean the you know uh, Kali you said that you know you'd never use also as the the prong collar I mean I, I've used the prong collar a lot over the years. I got a uh, local client now that I'm working with. She's she's uh, 95 pounds soaking wet. She's 70 years old. She's got a 105 pound German Shepherd. She's had yeah. several Shepherds in her life. You know, I, thankfully she showed up with a pinch collar, um, and uh, I didn't ask her. But that's the kind of yeah. scenario or dog team where you know, uh, just being a realist, um, you know, for for myself with with that dog team, you know, we helps take away the the physicality and on a day-to-day basis allow this woman to to function safely uh with that dog and and both get something out of it but the use of these tools is always the 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 hardest thing you know i mean in a you know some kind of ideal dog training world i think every e-collar and uh pinch collar and slip collar for that matter um you know you know (laughs) would not be sold to anybody in the general public without having you know a couple one-on-one professional sessions uh uh with yeah. it you know and um you know, that's one funny. of the big concerns you say that i've never thought about it this way before because i because i you know 
yeah, I, I, I agree with everything you said. And the tools are, you know, can be abused. You can abuse everything, right? And it's yeah. not the tool until it's in the use of, you know, used in somebody's hands. But like, it's funny because, and I didn't think about this when we were talking, when I was talking about it with Grayson, but, you know, yes, I would agree that the, you know, a slip could be used and it's pressure no different. But I don't, when I think about slip leads, you know why I like slip leads so much? Why is that? <laughs> because they're so easy to put on and off. Like, that's yeah. why I like them. They're fast. Like, they're yeah. they're easy to take on and off. I don't even think about it so much as the ability to be able to put pressure because of the design of them. Now, yes, mm-hmm. that's functional, and it makes sense to me, and I like the idea of being able to go on and off um, with, with good timing. But, like, I, I don't, like, my primary, like, my mindset has become, and early on, I would say, with my training, I think the function of a slip was better than a flat a lead connected to a flat collar because I could get that biting, you know, I could get mm-hmm. that, I could get, I could get that pressure and on and off quickly and sharply. And I don't know that I've thought about that for years anymore. Like I think mm-hmm. I actually really like it because it's so convenient. Like it's mm-hmm. an easy way I can extend it very easily to make it big and go over the dog's head instead of, I never started. And then I didn't, until I got this setter, I never, I shouldn't say never, but very rarely was I ever putting a collar on and off of a dog, like a buckle type mm-hmm. collar. And so mm-hmm. I've got, I run a, a GPS on her and I have this, this Garmin, whatever, this Garmin modeled GPS collar. And I, I have to put it on and I wear, her, I, I love a bell. I love the sound of it. I love, I love the idea. I, I try to not rely. I, I very much try not to rely on the GPS. So I, I kind of put it away and I bought the smallest, I think it's an Alpha 10. I think it's a very little thing, no screen, no nothing. And so, but I, I've put a collar on a dog more in the last 12 months than, than I've put on in 12 years when I mean just physically putting like a flat collar on and buckling it on and off. And I hate it. It's a pain in my ass. So mm-hmm. I, I think about that and I go, well, one of the biggest reasons I like a slip is just because I, I, I can use one hand and I can like kind of lift it up and over their head and I can lift it back off. And, and I never really thought about it that way, Kyle, until you just brought that up. So, you know, yeah, my mind, my, over the years, my mind has really changed, um, away from so much of the idea of the use of the physical pressure part of it, but I will not ever say there's no pressure because I'm all about, I'm all about pressure. It's, it's, it's pressure and praise and I have to have, I have to have them both. Yeah, and, so, and I, I, I highlighted uh, that particular, you know, concoction. You said they're pressure and praise. I mean, I think that's just, I, I mean, at the end, well, one thing that I would say before before I go into the pressure and praise um, uh, convo, um, just with the tools, um, you know, point of interest from one, you know, colleague to another, you know. So I, I started off, I probably trained like my first, 1500 dogs with uh slip chains it's just you know Mm -hmm. it's kind of like back then it was more industry standard you know it's just like yeah they were used more and it's they've been around forever and Mm -hmm. they worked you know so you know um, if used correctly and so they they did that and uh and then um uh this kind of like hybrid um uh you know i user friendly idea of these martingales came around you know Mm-hmm. Um, so the, the martingales with the chain component, actually, I haven't ordered from them in years cause I ordered so many collars, but there's a company called Silverfoot out of British Columbia. And, um, 
uh, I actually had, they had a great product with material and stuff, but they, their sizing was like incorrect for reality of dog training, um, in my opinion. So I actually ordered like, you know, like they had like, uh, uh, an extra small collar you got like this super chintzy chain you know so like yeah. i ordered an extra small size collar you know with the medium collar size chain you know kind yeah. of thing yep. and i did that and um and these are all quick release you know um yep. Yep. very sturdy quick release collars because yeah on and off and and stuff like that now um depending upon how you might be using the slip outside of healing um particularly um the slip might be a better use for what you're using it for than um uh than just heal but for healing um with uh good timing clear instruction uh yeah. you know those uh you know quality martingale collars with quick quick release with you know nice um circular shaped heavy duty links um you know i have found to be you know as successful as uh as the slip chains, uh, myself. Um, but anyway, um, so that's just a, a, t- a tool note, but, um, yeah, yeah praise, uh, pressure and praise. Um, you know, I, I, to me, I mean, that's like <laughs> the, those, that pressure and praise idea to me kind of sums up like the, the, the working development and relationship, you know, between a human and a dog. Um, and I, I think that of course, all these tools and conversations that you've had of late and this one, all, all cycles, uh, around that. And that's, um, dogs are like, Hey, Hey, yeah, I do everything from my kennel here. So everybody's staring sure. at me. Um, the, uh, the pressure and praise idea is something that, you know, I think temperament means everything, right? Uh, as to what actions, uh, um, you know, we're able to perform, we're able to be naturally. Um, and you know, uh, praise, I, I I think I like to put, uh, in front of that idea from the dog's perspective, right. Is, um, you know, um, like based on respect we've earned from the dog and therefore praise, you know, earned praise that the dog, you know, um, has earned through <laughs> through the execution of uh, you know of the exercises we're giving the dog based on the pressure that might be employed on it, and I I think the concept of earned praise as you get into that relationship development with the dog is profound. Like I I uh, I you know I would say I thought the conversation with Grayson was great. Um, I would say I agree with him seventy percent, with you ninety percent. <laughs> you know, um, sure, sure. agree with both of you a lot. Um, but I, I I think um uh the the value of praise to me, at least with my dogs, the dogs that I've chosen and selected and bred for my 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 more dependent softies. Um, you know. It means the world to them that, uh, uh, you know, they care what I think and mm-hmm. and um, yeah. and and what my delivery is in terms of on the emotional spectrum. So I, I don't I don't view praise as a like a, a gray area um, for reinforcement, um, uh, you know, of of doing things. And I think uh, I think maybe I'm able to say that because. You know, I'm, I'm not competing. I, I feel like all these field trial things, and it sounds like in the retriever world, 
even more so than the pointing dog world. It's like, it's like the extreme athlete, right? You know, it's like, yeah. you know, what, what, how much can we have this dog attain, you know, in terms of a training level and a fitness level and, uh, uh, an ability to be able to measure success. Um, and, I, that's just not me. I, I, I don't make dogs do more than what I need them to do. And for me, it's them being as, as naturally, connected and if they're not i make sure they are but i make sure they're as connected to me as possible at as young of age as possible to be the best grouse dog as possible as soon as possible but despite all of that like standard um it's kind of low when i look at it in the in the aspects of of pressure um and in the aspects of um uh you know to the extent that people work on creating these quote unquote finished dogs. And I think the going back to a saying that I'm always picking on, let a puppy be a puppy. I think a lot of people that say that kind of feel like they're going to they're gonna clean up all their mess, you know, that they allowed to happen in like the second season when they go finish the dog more, you know, sure, and, sure. and I don't do that. So I, maybe that's why I feel it's that much more important, you know, to have everything be clean, you know, yeah. from the get go. But well, anyhow, I, I, that's kind of my take on the, the, the subject of pressure and, and praise. And, um, uh, that, that stuck with me as well when I was listening to you talk, uh, in that, uh, earlier conversation. Yeah. When, when you say, when you say that, for, you know, doing it from the get go, I look at it and I go, you know, the dogs do a lot of things right. And, and, yeah. and, and that's part of them intentionally. I mean, you, you're a breeder. Um, I, and I going back to like breeding stuff, you know, I don't want to come off and sound like a real snob when it comes to breeding. But I will tell you this. I'm real snobby for myself. Like, yeah. I am really picky about genetics because I recognize how important and how easy, how much easier it's going to make my life. And mm-hmm. so why why not? There's no, and there's no such thing as a bad dog. There are bad fits between dogs and handlers. I really mm-hmm. believe that. Like, the right dog with the right person it works man it's magic it's music it, yeah it's, it's easy dance, it's and the owner's stuff. the best handler for that dog not not yeah. a train, you know yeah and that's uh but yeah do you want you know do you want the 100 hour dog or do you want the 300 hour dog you want right. the 100 hour dog right. <laughs> you know right and that's right. and that's uh that's what certainly experienced dog people that have been around the block and have seen you know i mean i'm not a lab guy couldn't tell you anything about lines but I've literally trained over 1700 labs in my career and you know, it's a Heinz 57, you know, within that sure. breed when you just go and same in setters actually. Yeah. But, um, yeah. uh, you know, when we, when we look at, you know, the, the diversity, I mean, it's, there is no greater point in, in history. I feel that the general public purchasing a dog, a purebred sporting dog needs to be more educated than now. Um, I think that there's, I, but I also think that there's more resources. There's much, there's just much more information available at your fingertips to make mm-hmm. more educated, uh, decisions, um, on selecting a dogs, but, but it's, but it's needed. It's needed yeah. to find the right fit because I mean, somebody like myself, I have a lot of dogs, you know, and I, I raise a few dogs up every year still. And, you know, I hope that maybe one makes the cut or, you know, I, I saw them as started dogs and I've brought up over a hundred setters myself and I've only bred out of, I don't know how many exactly, but around 10 out of a hundred, sure, <laughs> um, sure. you know, um, but it's because the dogs that stay here, I want them to make my life 
not only enjoyable but easy. And you know, a lot of uh, most people. Um, and I, I mean, I, <clears throat> I, I, I love my dogs deeply, but I, I just on a professional business level, there's you know, dogs retire. They might get retired into another home and. Um, you know, if the dog doesn't meet the breeding cut, it, you know, it, it's definitely not going to stay here, you know, and these are painful <laughs> departures right. for me every time. But when we talk about the average dog owner that loves bird hunting, um, regardless of how little or how much, uh, research, you know, um, and just playing statistical odds, they could have went to the right person and just still got the wrong puppy, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, uh, you know, they're not gonna, they're not gonna move that dog on most likely, you know, if they're a person that truly loves their dog and this is as much or more their companion than their working dog, you know? Um, so that's the dog that they have, you you know, you have to deal with the dog that you've been dealt in front of you, um, as an owner. And, uh, uh, I think, I think the different training modalities and the concoctions thereof, um, are so vast today um, that uh, you know something that that um, you know you you've said you know like you kind of uh, not to put words in your mouth but like took a hodgepodge of you know just your life experiences seeing other mm-hmm. people do things and stuff and what works for you and what you know yeah. combination of what felt right and what worked right and uh, yeah. and I think that's what every trainer does just everybody <laughs> feels differently about different things. Um, but, uh, there's, there are certain modalities and I think within the, with the, within the working dog world, there are certain modalities that have, that are hard to, to blend. You know, um, I, I don't, I think there, there are bits and pieces that, mm-hmm. that, uh, um, you know, you can do, I, I, I don't think that, uh, um, you know, it, you know, you guys talk about camps and it's hard. It's hard to try to, one of the reasons why I made this podcast was because, uh, while I have no problem being a black sheep on my own little course, you know, across the sea, um, you know, uh, I would love to have, um, uh, field trial guys on here. I have zero interest in ever doing a field trial. You know, my best field trial prospect dogs leave here the fastest. <laughs> um, sure. but, uh, I, I, I embrace diversity. I embrace, you know, what is what what drives that person to have that dog, to make that dog, to do those things with those dogs, because it only makes me understand everything better. And right. uh, uh, you know, uh, hopefully, uh, conversations like these, at minimum, will continue to, uh, and that you've had more so, um, will you know have people. Uh, Trainers of very and breeders of very opposing views have more open dialogues to um, you know discuss you know what field trials measure what their what their goals are and you know the the beauty of um, the beauty of the size of our country and the number of people involved in sporting dogs and stuff is that there there's a there's a kind of dog a kind of trainer a kind of breeder out there for every person um, for sure. It's just can be difficult for people to to find them, and uh, um, you know I think that's that that plays some big yeah, components I, into how we communicate with the dog that we got in front of us. I you you I'm glad you touched on that because I'm I'm uh, 
I got another big smile on my face right now because it the whole the field trial thing. So I'm not a I'm not a competitive guy with my dogs. I've never competed in anything with my with my labs. I did a, a game farm hunt thing one day where they had to release birds and but that that's the extent of it. And and that that was it. But I like I don't compete. I don't do trials. I don't do um, hunt tests. And and the re, in the retriever world for for very specific reasons. And we don't have to get into that, but. It's just not. It's not the fit for me and the dog. And then I. It's not an interest to me. But mm-hmm. on the other hand, so I get this setter puppy, and I can't tell you how. In the beginning, prior to have, I mean, it took me five years, uh, just over five years, to nail it, nail it down to where I was going to get her from. I waited mm-hmm. an extra year. It was two years wait. Ended up being before I got her. So it's been quite a. Gave me all kinds of time to 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 get antsy right and so yeah when i got her my last i thought when i got the setter i thought i knew what i wanted i didn't have a freaking clue i had no (laughs) idea i had no idea what i actually wanted until i got her and then i realized you hunted with a lot of pointing breeds or no no, very few very few but i ended up but i hunted with and it's a it's just a small world there's a a guy up lives very close to where my camp is and we met through some social media stuff and super guy and I consider him a pretty good friend and he has a puppy he has a dog out of the same out of I so she's from Northwoods Bird Dogs you know Jerry Coulter's yep, dog Jerry, yep. and so he's got a Northwoods dog and we connected and I I hunted with over his dog well his dog is actually my dog's uncle so um and we we knew that was going to be happening and I hadn't gotten her yet but um so I hunted with him and he explained to me what to expect. Um, you know, I had one of my labs with that I had actually in training and I healed her along for the hunt. And, um, it was just, and I think he was more impressed with the way the lab worked as equally as impressed as I was with the setter work. Cause we were both looking at the opposite worlds and we were like, wow, that's really cool. And I'm thinking to myself, this is boring. And he's thinking to myself, he's himself, what his dog did was boring. And, but I was so impressed and I was so uh, surprised that I didn't. So I'm used to the, I was used to the dog that was always in contact. I was always used to the Mm -hmm. dog that was with me. And that was, that was my, that was everything I knew. And when I watched this dog work at distance, which wasn't great by, by no means great distance in a grouse woods, but pretty good distance and way more distance than I was comfortable with. I was, I mean, I was hanging on to I was my, the hair on the back of my neck stood up when that dog took off, and I went, "Holy Christ! What are we? What are, what's going on here?" Well, after watching that dog work this relatively small cover, and point seven or eight birds in a row, and I shot one that was just most the most picture perfect point where I walked into it with my dog on heel, flushed the bird, shot the bird. His dog didn't want to retrieve it; it was in a bog, like a swamp. And <laughs> I, I, he came over and he's like, "Where is it?" And, and here I, I, he goes, he looks at me, he goes, well, that dog retrieve? I said, well, what the, what do you think I brought her for? You She's know? got so, a mark. She's ready. Yeah. <laughs> so I, li- I lined her, sent her. She made a beautiful, it was just, oh my God. And so after that, I went, holy shit, I didn't know what I was in, getting into here. And, uh-huh. and so over, over a short period of time, I've realized, and what, what I've realized closer to what I think I want. And I, yeah. I still don't have it figured out. And that's been part of the problem for me because it's hard to hit a goal when you don't know what the goal looks like, right? Sure. So it's been, it's been part of my process. Yeah. But when, I, when I, I, st- I went to a field trial, I went to a grouse trial, 
and it was last fall. And my buddy, couple buddies went with, he actually went with, and then uh, a good friend of mine who has a, a pup that's about six or seven months older from Northwoods than mine, he went with me. We went out and watched this field trial. And I walked every brace, I mean, I walked just about every brace that day. And I, and I got into this group of guys, and I've never felt so welcomed by a group of strangers in my life in the dog world. This was the the best group of guys that I I could connect with them, I could talk with them, I felt confident like asking dumb questions and they didn't know me from anybody and they they recognized how little I knew. And so all of a sudden we start talking and we there's no charge. We don't have to pay for any of this stuff. They gave us lunch. I'm just sitting there going, this is ridiculous. I've never seen something like this. And so I'm going, oh man, it's interesting. So then I, I, I went, I ran, I ran my dog in a derby this last fall and I, oh my gosh, it was one of, it was one of the most enjoyable things I've done. And, and she didn't win anything. You know, she, it was, it was not for her. It was for me. It was for me to get an experience of understanding what this thing was going to look like. She was pretty young at the time and she's an off age dog. So she's a kind of a disadvantage anyway, but I'm going to put her in some field trials this spring. And, but here's the, here's the interesting part to me about the field trials when it comes to these setters versus the labs is there is something about to me, the idea of a wild bird trial. Like there is very, it, it, you cannot replicate that. It, yep. There's no way we can replicate it with, with simulated trials, tests, anything like that. But when you walk into the same ground that I would hunt, it is the same, you know, it's public land stuff that we're walking mm-hmm. on. But you go into these public land areas. Now, what I've found is some of that, some of that stuff that they're, and it depends on who, you know, it's so subjective and who's judging and what are they looking for and what do they like. And there's there are some definite things about it that I look at and I go, I don't know. That's not necessarily what I'm after with my dog. Cause my dog's a hunting dog. I'm, I'm mm-hmm. not looking at this as a trial thing. I'm, I'm hunting her. And so, but the amount of information that I've gotten in training and from tra- about training in general, about genetics and lines and specific dogs. And that's all fascinating to me. So there's oh, yeah. just a wealth, wealth of knowledge there. And then the idea of being able to see, and here's what I like about it. I've watched some of this stuff and I've, and I've had great conversations with several people that are a part of these groups and really willing to talk. And they, I've said to them, my concerns, and I've explained it to them and they, they get it. And they go, yeah, that's be, you know, I totally understand. They said here, and I told them, I said, here's what I'm not going to do. Like, I think there is a way to win this game. Like the best dogs with the best handlers will win the most consistently the best dog doesn't always win and the best handler doesn't always win because there's a lot of variables there that are uncontrolled and so i like that you know it's not fair <laughs> like our <No>. american field tri- <laughs> our american field trials are fair because we're in america and we're going to make everything fair when i'm talking retrievers <laughs> and i'm going life's not fair and so but i do think that you know this cream rises to the top type idea is probably true it takes an incredible amount of commitment if you want to be that guy that's going to have a dog that is tested and proven time and time again and quite honestly i appreciate that commitment but i also look at it as what there's no better way for me to truly see a dog work as a dog and and when i say as a bird dog it's now some of these dogs i don't ever see them 
because they're lost. You know, you lose them. And I look at that and I go, tell these, and some of that shit's appealing to some of these, some of these guys. And I told, more than you know. <laughs> and I've told, and I've told these guys, I said, here's the deal. I won't win if I ever win. And I'm not saying I'll win, but I, I'll be honest with you. I don't go places to lose. You know, I'm not look. I'm not. Go, I'm not making these trips and everything to, to never win. Like I'd love to win. Sure, it's in my nature. But yeah. what I would, what what I would like to do is win with the idea of that they can't that that they, they see a dog run that they just can't fault enough to not win and if that happens great and if it doesn't happen that's okay too but i won't i don't want to change like i want i want i hope here's a there's a thing you know in in in, i like british field trials um for the reasoning for labradors and in the retrievers for the reasoning of it's a pretty level it's a relatively level playing field it's it's not i won't call it wild birds but it's 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 relatively wild birds and it's not scripted and you know it's it's a luck of the draw type thing in a lot of scenarios, but again, consistent dogs win consistently. And, but with this, with this whole idea of when I go to, when I go to work this dog, I'm not going to change the way I would hunt. And over there they have what they call the guns choice guns award. So like the shooters, they're going to pick what's the best dog. Like what would be the dog I would hunt over here? And so I wish there was something like that because that would be what I would rather win maybe than first place would be the one that of the judge's opinion, if they were to go to hunt, which one would they want to hunt over the most? Because to me, that, that is a real important part. And from what I have seen, and I haven't seen enough to, to really know what the hell I'm talking about, but eventually I will. And what I have seen is, so the, the trial that I went to in the fall, there was I, I 20 some dogs that ran the braces as open shooting dogs. And there was, they were all pointers and setters with the exception of one GSP. And so, I mean, you want to talk about black sheep where well, there he is. And so, <laughs> yes. so here, here we are. And I walk all these braces and some of these dogs I'm looking at and going, I don't know, man, I, that's not mine. I, I don't want to do that. That's not what I'm looking for. Some of them I'm walking, watching and going, wow, that was pretty cool. I like that. But so here we go. And here's the GSP runs. And the whole time I'm thinking to myself, everybody knows it, but he's, you know, he's the only one that looks like that. He's the only one with a short <laughs> tail. He's, and so as he goes through, dog has four broke fines. I never lost, I never lost the bell with that dog. And I'm not the, in the front, but I'm, in, I'm, I'm trying to keep up. But the dog worked really, really reasonable range. Um, never, not always in sight, but never out, never lost. The handler and the dog connection was hands down the best that I saw. The guy, it was, it was, it was beautiful to watch as a spectator. And that's not a spectator sport. This was really nice to watch. And I saw, I saw this whole thing go down. And I, as we left, we left before the winner was awarded because the next day they ran some race, some races. But when we left, the guys I left with, we talked about every dog on the way home. And I said, I'll tell you what, man, I'll really question if that, if that GSP doesn't win, I got to question what the hell's going on there. You know, he doesn't look right, but he really hunted nicely. Well, the GSP won, and it was like not. And every person I talked with said it wasn't even a. There was no doubt that the performance was impeccable. So mm-hmm. that gave me some confidence in the idea of, well, you don't have to be the biggest runner. You don't have to be the flashiest. I don't have to be. I'm not. I am. I am not the loudest in the woods. I'm pretty damn quiet. They think I'm r- ridiculous because I come with a British pee whistle, peeless whistle, <laughs> going through the woods, peeping at my dog and. I don't, I'm not into being real noisy and stuff. So I do do things differently that could hurt me, but I just, I'm not going to change just because if it's a trial. And so 
We'll see. I, I don't know that it's for me big picture, but I'm telling you right now, I'll learn a hell of a lot by just being around it. And that's yeah. and, you it's know, exciting and, to me, you know, like I get pumped about that. Yeah. Well, there's a, again, you know, I, I think with any experiences with dogs, um, you know, that you have that a person has not done before, you're going to learn something, uh, you know, sure. how sure. it's going to, you know, uh, shape you and it's going to shape you. It just, you know, you don't know how it's going to shape you until you have that experience, you know? Right, so, right. um, some I think of it, some of it, some of what I learn will be what not to do. I'll tell I can, yeah. I know that. And some, yeah. and a lot of it, and you know, it'll go both ways, but, um, it is a, it is an interesting element that, that this setter has brought to me. And, um, mm-hmm. and it's, it's an, it's oh in, for me, you know, the, you feel the same way. I'm sure like, everybody knows the fall is not long enough. And so, you know, I can't, we've messaged before this back and forth a little bit and man, I'm, the sun is warmer. The snow is receding. It is like, I'm just waiting for that first paint to hear. And last year it was on March. It was last year. It was on March 16th that I, that I, that they first showed up by my house here. And so, you know, obviously they're late and there's, there's nature never rushes, but everything's accomplished. They're coming. So, you know, when it, when it happens, it'll be condensed and you know that too, but that to me is, that's not something I get with the, with the retrievers. I love spring training with them. I love summer training with them. I love hunting them in the fall. But this idea of the bird dogs in the spring is, it's a second season, you know, yeah. and, and, and I, I do enjoy that. And I kind of appreciate that a little bit more now because of her. Yeah, for sure. I have, um, I have a, a decent number of clients that uh, are woodcock banders and, uh, sure. while I'm not a big woodcock hunter, I'm, I'm a grouse guy and, uh, I actually avoid woodcock like the plague. I, I have a lot of respect for them and I, and I think they're an awesome little bird. Yeah. Um, but I, the way I raise and develop my grouse dogs, I, I don't see them much in the, in the fall, but, um, yeah. I, I would love, <laughs> um, to be able to try to carve out the time to, to participate, um, like in Michigan's banding program, because mm-hmm. I, I would, I just enjoy, uh, I, you know, I, I, I saw a lot of dogs to biologists and, and they, yeah. they use them for banding and, um, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a really fascinating way to utilize the bird dog. Um, yeah. you know, and they're, uh, they're, they're a real cool little bird for, for sure. But I'm, yeah, I think, I'm, um, I, you know, with the I'm trials, Oops, yeah, I'm sorry. No, go ahead. No, if you want, uh, I was going to go back to trials. I don't know if you were talking. No, I was just going to say about on the banding thing. I'm actually going to go to a, a banding clinic uh, in May over in Minnesota at, at that Pine Ridge Grouse Camp. Okay. Um, I'm going to head over. I think there's a gal over there that's got that's got your dogs. Um, yeah, she is Bailey Peterson. Min- she yeah, yeah she's yeah, uh yeah. she's uh <laughs> bands more woodcock and. Uh, minnesota than anybody sure i follow her on yeah i follow her on instagram i um i don't know her personally but um i should be i would imagine i'm gonna end up um, meeting her here in a couple um, Mm -hmm. i don't know i guess in may sometime but yeah um yeah i'm looking forward to it another opportunity for and again i i don't know that it's it's just i think gonna afford a real nice opportunity to learn a lot and yeah that's where i'm that's where my mind is at with this right now yeah well hopefully uh I think Michigan has their, you have to take like a, you have to take a course, um, like a weekend course, and then you have to have a mentor, which I I got plenty of my dog people around here, 
um, that do it that could mm-hmm. be a mentor for the apprenticeship part of it. But um, yeah, it, that to me that's where that would be my my uh, my woodcock interest. You know, yeah. uh, it yeah. does kind of create a, a, a another season, and I don't know. It's there's a the idea of just uh, the research and you know uh, conservation minded element uh, behind it is. Uh, yeah. Uh, you know, a, a, a tiny way to kind of give back and enjoy it at the same time, you know, for sure, uh, yep. you know, so that's cool. But yeah, I think the, the field trial experiences, um, are, are, I think everybody should experience, uh, you know, as much different aspects of their dog world, you know, to, to better define who they are themselves within it. And, uh, I mean, I, <clears throat> my dogs are just not, uh, one, I'll never give up hunting to go do a competition Mm -hmm. ever a single day of it never ever but um you know i I, i've always thought about like oh maybe someday i'll start an organization because i you know i have uh uh, my dogs are like tracking style dogs they just would never ever they would you'd have to flip the results sheet upside down to have uh yeah have have me be at the top of that but uh, you know i think of trials in general whether talking those types of trials or in my mind, what would be, you know, great kinds of trials is it would much more so for me be because there are so many variables between uh, weather, cover, you know, uh, mm-hmm. the, the particular day and how the birds are generally behaving um, on that day across the region. Um, it'd be more like go see that dog run. 10 times on 10 different days and have two judges with that dog while it's actually hunting in October when you're hunting these birds. That's sure. what matters. That's when it matters under 10 different days, 10 different locations, you know, and, but to me, uh, judging against a standard and you can nitpick all you want within what numerical values, you know, uh, you can, you know, factually create to try to create a, some point of evaluation, but yeah, wild birds is obviously, where it's at and i've had a million conversations uh uh over the years with with people on on birds and every conversation no matter what background and perspectives and how you like to hunt the kind of dog you like there's so many variables you know um yeah and uh to to evaluate it um uh the way that it's come to be evaluated is you really need to um have a a precise criteria that actually isn't a very long list. Um, uh, you know, uh, and, and I think, uh, I think that's hard to do in something that, again, it's as simple as complicated as you want to make it. Yeah. To me, hunting with the dog and the nuances and the intricacies and all the variables to me, that's, it's complicated. Um, and, uh, you know, for testing purposes, I think, um, there has been, there's a simplicity to it for the point of evaluation. And, yeah. uh, you know, and it, that's can't, a, it can't be lost. Fall. You know, the perspective there, the, you know, the point can't be lost that it is a game, you know, it's not, sure. a, it's sure. not a, um, it is not well, a hunt and you yeah. don't, and hunting's you know, not a race. <laughs> right. Exactly. You know? Exactly. And so yeah. they are different. And, and, and I, I don't think I, I certainly wouldn't, um, I certainly won't argue against that. And I, I think that from what, what I have gathered too, I, I think that's especially, you know, I think, I think occasionally you get different opinions from what I'm going to call pros, technically pros versus amateurs. And I think sure. what I have found is the amateurs 
oftentimes have equal to or better uh, dogs that they're that they're actually competing with uh, when mm-hmm. it comes to some of this stuff. And I I think a lot of it comes from, um, you know, the the idea of their purpose. And I I think that I read an article. I read something recently that was written. A guy named Franklin Assa wrote it, and he's an amateur. It was in the amateur field trial publications of some sort and it was an article that short article that that was warning almost to the idea of as judges you know we have uh, in the field trial world the judges have to be really conscious of where they take this where they take field trial uh, trials in general because of you got to be careful you know you don't know the full story on this stuff and as you name dogs and depending on name dogs winners and and champions and all this stuff you have to recognize that there are a lot awful lot of variables that happen on a course that you don't know and you have to as a judge you have to keep that in mind and understand that because like you're saying it's you know it isn't the real thing and but it's in it's an i don't know how you make it perfect there's no way to make it perfect and so no, you gotta do I, the best I agree. you can yeah i don't think you can make it perfect i i i, I mean the thing Again, you know, holding the hold my little black sheep flag. Um, yeah, I uh, I I always try to, you know, again, there's a market for every kind of dog out there for every breeder that's making a kind, of, you know, that kind of dog. And um, but in the field trial world, you know, I mean, I think less than one percent of English setter owners in this country participate in field trials that hunt their exactly. dogs, you know, or less exactly. than that, you know. Yep. yep. And the idea that you know, again, it's just a matter of like who, you know, uh, Jerry's a great example. Jerry's a, uh, uh, haven't had, I've tried to get him on the show a couple of times just to talk about himself and I haven't <laughs> been successful yet, but, sure. um, uh, you know, he has a, we know of each other obviously. Um, but, uh, you know, he has a great reputation, lots and lots of dogs all across the lake states and the, and, and the country. And, um, you know, we, we breed very different types of dogs. Um, to do the same task, but it has just a, it's, it's, uh, you know, it, it's, it can be to me, the challenging part of it all, um, because people have preferences, you know, right. If, right, if, if right. all the dogs are handling all the birds, they come across well, you know, <laughs> you know, are responsive. There's, there's a, you know, team aspect to it. Like, like, and you can't fault the dog based on it's, it's hunting. Well, then, then now you're starting to add, you know, race into it, you know, um, and uh, it, it it makes things it makes things difficult because you can have a lot of different types and styles of dogs all handle their birds very well um, and get shot opportunities. And at the end of the day, to say which ones are better becomes uh, problematic. And yeah. And you I know, I, I mean, I've trained tons of dogs at a field trial championship lines and new people go and get these dogs. And then they come to me and their eyeballs are the size of oranges. They're like, oh, my God, I got a Ferrari. OK, sure. you know, I've only ever drove a Subaru. OK, yeah. you know, <laughs> um, yeah. and so like they're and it happens a lot with people that like go from retrievers to to it. And it's a mixed bag. Some people are like, whoa, wow. Like, oh, my God, that's a lot for me. And those right. are usually people that come to me. And then there's people that very much embrace it. I'm like, all right, yeah, this is totally different, but yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm with it. I'm, I'm on it, you know? Right. And uh, so it's just, there's, I, I don't think there will ever be uh, in a country with almost 400 million people 
you know, and tens of thousands of pointing dogs born every year. I don't think there will ever be a unified singular standard, um, you know, that that is going to yeah. be able to provide a certificate that says this. But I do think that um, everything's come to be in this country because there's enough people in every, mm, you know, camp, <laughs> you know, yeah. uh, that uh, there's enough there's enough support um, for people that have had, you know, enjoyed success uh, with all those types of dogs to, you know, to continue to do that. Just, you know, to what extent yeah. uh, they're all going to uh, be in the same place at the same event uh, because all their dogs are different um, is is a challenge. But as long as everybody's welcoming, you know, then yeah. uh, that's the – to me, that's the ties that need to bind, you know. Yeah, you mentioned, you know, you say you don't know that there'll ever be a unified standard. I don't know that there should be. I don't I don't yeah. think there no, should be. Well, there definitely and, should. Yeah, I, I would I would say that. I there definitely shouldn't be because if otherwise right? then we're eliminating, you know, you know, decades and decades of breeding of various types of dogs that are all very successful and just there's different right. types of preferences, you know. Right. And that's just it. And when you say, you know, which one's better, I think that's the thing that people have to start to realize is it's not a question of which one's better. It's a, which one it's, we're not, we're not determining which dogs are the best. We're figuring out, I think we need to figure out which one's the best for you, which one's yeah. the best for me. Sure. And so once sure. you do that, that's, that's, that's where I just think dogs do get bad raps. And I, I look at it like, there ain't a bad dog out there. There's not, there's, there's, there's fits that aren't good for who's working that dog. And that creates, that creates a lot of problems and no one ever blames the dog. Or yeah. no one ever blames the person. It's always blamed on the dog. It's, and I look at it and I go, I think it's, we're the ones who got, are, are kind of driving that bus. So we got we to gotta be, yeah. we yeah. got to be smart about that. You know what I mean? Yeah. No, absolutely. Absolutely. And I think, um, you know, I mean, every, every reputable breeder has, has a breeding goal in mind, right? You know, and, mm-hmm. and when, and when they, when you look at that, I mean, I'll take, uh, my world of shepherds, you know, I, I work with, um, service dogs and and help people with that too and like in the uk they actually have in england they have they have a very strict you know like breeding program for uh seeing eye dogs okay and we have that here too uh and with labs as well a lot um but they have with shepherds i'm a little more familiar with the shepherd end of it um but uh you know those types of dogs that are the gold standard german shepherd seeing eye dogs are not the same dogs and breeders that the u.s military goes to to put them in afghanistan yeah yeah (laughs) they're they're a completely different animal completely different animal even though they're a german shepherd right and i think that um you know uh i mean to me it comes down to a breeder's responsibility honestly um you know breeder's responsibility to make sure that it's a good fit um for for that person um i mean i i try to scare people away and if they come back then then we're good um yeah well i think but, you know what i was just what i was gonna say was well I, I, here's what i because i've i have followed you for 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 some time i mean i think if i look back on our messages i think we messaged in nine, 19 um 2019 you and i did on some on dm stuff and so i followed you for quite a long time and one thing i will say is you're very honest 
you're honest about your dogs. And I, I think that that's maybe something that needs to be, we need more of it, not just in the dog world in, in general life, but uh, in the dog world itself, like, and there's nothing wrong with being honest. Like, well, I think it, the problems it come benefits when, everybody. Yes, <laughs> you know, and... The problems come when there isn't that because then yeah. the, you'll never, you know, so I, I, I just think I'm a, I do really believe in that strongly. I, 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 I'm such a, I'm such a, a student-minded person right now, especially when it comes to setters, mm-hmm. um, that I, you know, I just, I can't get enough of watching everything. And mm-hmm. so, and I, and do I have preferences? Yeah, but like I said before, a year and a half ago, before I had this dog, I thought I had a preference. I didn't know what the hell I was, I had no idea what I wanted. And in a year and a half from now, it could be very different too. And in 10 years from now, I bet you it'll be different. And so the... That you know, it's the great part of dogs. It's a great yeah. part about dogs, and yeah. so I I love that variety. Um, but I I will say that you know, in a general sense, breeds wise, I the setter to me is you know I went back and forth on on a couple of different pointing breeds, and I'm just so glad I landed on the setter, um, and I'm glad I I I have the one I have, and um, it'll people I joke with me all the time that you're and they can tell instantly you never you're never not going to have one are you no i i never won't and and i love the labs and i feel like they accent each other very well and um but i i love i love i just i i get into i get into people that really are passionate about their stuff and Mm -hmm. and you have that and that's something that i've i've i dig it man yeah, well, I appreciate that. You know, I was thinking of when you said, you know, they complement each other, the labs. And uh, so I have a gentleman, actually, he was one of my more recent podcasts that I've I've done lately. Uh, John Pine is his name. He lives in Maine, and uh, he's an avid uplander, had setters for many years. He also got into dogs with labs. And anyway, take a listen to that episode. It's I a, did. It's a, it's I a good did, one. actually. Oh, you did? I, listened, I just listened to it a couple days ago. Yeah, oh, okay. I really yes. enjoyed it. So he, he's, got a, a lot. he's got a lab from blue cypress kennels which you had mentioned um trained dogs out of there i just yeah yep very nice dogs yeah so great guy what what is the guy's name john pine p-y-n-e i've seen him i've seen him he's on instagram so i've seen some of his uh blue cypress pictures of his blue cypress dog because he hunts a lot of grouse i see a picture yeah he hunts all he lives in maine and you know all his grouse hunters love grouse the most but he he loves hunting all over north america yeah. Um, he's, uh, uh, he's a great guy, but anyway, I just thought of when you had said it as a team, uh, blue Cypress, uh, dog stuck in my mind, yep. but, yep. um, yeah, I mean, well, like all of these, uh, you know, trainer, uh, conversations, lots of times, you know, we can talk forever on subjects and, uh, I definitely in the future would, uh, love to have you on the show again as, you know, you get more experience in your pointing dog world and you got you know more stories to share and and uh perspectives on things and uh i i know you said uh you know without divulging our uh, exact locations for grouse hunting purposes (laughs) um yeah you know you're not uh you are actually very close to me so physically so um you know yeah anytime you want to take a ride up and say hi my 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 falls and stuff get uh kind of insane but uh i'm always here working dogs uh whatever time of year it is when there's not three feet of snow on the ground but i think we're down to about two 
right now. Yeah, so sure. um, no, I'd love to, man. I, I, I really would. And I, it, it's been a pleasure and I, I do, I really appreciate you having me, um, and talking with me and, uh, I'd, I'd love to, I'd love to, uh, connect at some point. That's for sure. I'd love to see yeah. some of those dogs. I, yeah, I, yeah. I, I love the, I've watched enough of it that it would be really enjoyable to see it in person. Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, uh, Jeremy, why don't you tell everybody, uh, where they could find you on social media or, or website or whatnot, if they want to reach out. Yeah. Uh, I appreciate that. Uh, every, the, the easiest way would be at dog bone hunter. Um, and that's our, that's all of our stuff. That'd be our dogbonehunter.com, but if, is the website, but at dogbonehunter is, is all of our, uh, I would say our handles for all of our, our kind of social media stuff, YouTube, um, Instagram, Facebook, TikTok, all that stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. All right. Uh, well, you just hang on the line here with me. Um, everybody, uh, this is Setter Talk. I'm your host, Kyle Warren. Our guest today is Jeremy Moore. Um, very long conversation, but, uh, you know, uh, went a little deep on some training philosophies and just how we feel about the dogs. I hope you enjoyed it. Um, and I look forward to the next time. In the meantime, give your setter a scratch on the head for me and make it a great day.